individuality and freedom and stuff like that. And that's needed to be able to even start this uh, transformational process of growing up. Absolutely. And, uh, and I find that if you do have a community that has been kind of uh, taken care of in a sense, mm-hmm. uh, like say by the government or whatever, um, that they lose their sense of self-determination. Mm-hmm. They, and they gain this sense of entitlement and they become comfortable with a lot less than they're capable of just because it's given to them. Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty and the left-hand path this is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host paul frederick greetings and welcome to another installment of d2 today my guest is jeremy crow many of you will be familiar with jeremy crow he is a left-hand path occultist and luciferian and holds that Lucifer is the embodiment of illumination or enlightenment, a potent symbol of independent free thought and the drive toward liberty in all forms. He's known by the title Archon in the Assembly of Lightbearers, formerly the Greater Church of Lucifer, and is a co-author of the book Wisdom of Eosphoros, along with Michael and Hope Ford. And he's currently working on publishing his own book, Initiation into the Left-Hand Path, which we discuss a little bit in the interview. And here I just have to pause for a moment and say what an intense interview this turned out to be. We went on for like three hours and took some unexpected turns as I discovered Jeremy is an aficionado of Bitcoin. And what I had expected would be a discussion largely centering around occultism led into a very informed discussion of fractional reserve banking, the gold standard, the Federal Reserve, and liberty ideas in general. It was very refreshing and enlightening. We could have gone on for another hour probably. And we'll probably have him back again someday and get more into depth on these things for as you know I consider all these questions of personal liberty and economic freedom to be intimately tied to the values of the left-hand path. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Jeremy Crow. My man, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Not bad. I'm doing okay. So um, it's great to, to be able to finally uh, connect with you in this kind of format and talk about things. I've been seeing um, the stuff that you're doing out there in the world um, mm-hmm. for a while now. And um, it's some very intriguing things that you got going on out there in the uh, left-hand path and uh, Luciferian um, movement, I would say. So 
Um, so I guess, you know, here's the first thing I'd like to hear you, uh, hear you talk about is, do you consider Luciferianism to be a left-hand path? And, and if so, how, why, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, although I do kind of have a bit of a problem with the, the term left-hand path in general, just because I find that the term itself lends itself to a lot of misunderstanding. Um, mm-hmm. Because when you, you hear left-hand path and right-hand path, you think of complete polar opposites. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing is, like, when people hear right-hand path, they think, like, saint, and then left-hand path, they think sinner or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Or pure good, pure evil sort of thing. But um, I kind of like to frame it in terms of, like, a complete path or incomplete path. Um now, like uh, the left-hand path, we don't reject works of light. You know, we're we're real people. We're we're actual. We're not uh, stereotypes or or anything like that. We're we're real people, genuine humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we there we love people. You know, we have relationships with with individuals that we love and care about. And it's people think left-hand path is just a purely selfish. Thing, but um, it's not so much selfishness as rational self-interest. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, so I do feel that when you say left-hand path, there are some people that are going to say, "Oh, I'm not left-hand path. I'm middle path. I embrace, you know, works of light, and I courageously explore the darkness." Well, to me, that's the left-hand path, and. If you're doing it in the complete way, you're you're doing both. You know, you're not rejecting works of light. Right. Uh, although on the right hand path, you do see that a lot of times you you have people that consider themselves light workers and they shun the darkness explicitly. Um, and so, to me, that's an incomplete path. So uh, in terms of the in terms of Luciferianism, I feel that Luciferianism in particular is one of these uh, left-hand paths that that embraces the, the complete thing because um, with Luciferianism in, in particular, you have well obviously it's based off of the word Lucifer, which means bringer of light, light being a universal symbol since time immemorial of of truth and awareness um so you could say that uh luciferianism has that drive to share the light Mm -hmm. you know it's not just about empowering the self but it's about trying to leave your mark on the world uh to try and exert your influence in order to try and leave the world a better place and you found it Mm -hmm. so there is that uh, kind of philanthropic aspect of Luciferianism that that you don't always necessarily see in every branch of the left-hand path. Mm-hmm. No, I totally, uh, I, 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 I totally relate to what you're saying. I, I think in some ways the reason that we even have to talk about a right-hand path is simply because, uh, for me, uh, that that we have to sort of contrast ourselves against what um, other people think about things and and in many ways to me the right hand path 
to me, the right-hand path is, is essentially the way of, of uh, collectivism, um, mm-hmm. obedience, authoritarianism, and stuff like that. And it's and it really uh, not even a, a spiritual path in the way that I consider spiritualism to be a form of, 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 uh, of becoming, of dynamic self, internal self-transformation. Like you mentioned uh, the term rational self-interest. I mean, that absolutely has to be um, a part of it for, for, for someone to go on a path of like internal uh, transformation. And so, but, but something happened, like, um, uh, have you ever checked out a Dr. Uh, a Stephen Flowers book, Lords of the Left Hand Path? Yes. Yeah, that's a great one. Awesome book, but he makes he makes a point in there that if you follow back, and a lot of people have like noticed this before. If you if you take even like the the major right hand path movements, and you follow them back to their origins, you see that often the founders were really probably more what we consider left hand path back in the day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. But you know, like Jesus yes. the magician and 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 stuff like that. Um, but something happened as these movements like went on through time, where they somehow. Uh, mutated into authoritarian obedience, uh, political control type systems, you know. So they're actually, uh, in my opinion, they're not even actually paths anymore because they don't, I don't think they lead to any sort of uh, actual spiritual transformation or or becoming, you know, self-deification, you know, which is a, a word I know I've heard you use that term uh, before in, in, in your works, that there's not actually any self-deification in it, and left-hand path is the way of self-deification. It really, in that sense, left-hand path really is the way. You know, if you go back to, like, you know, what Lao Tzu was talking about with the Tao, the way, you know, it really is the way of self-transformation. But in the current environment that we live in, in this world, to distinguish ourselves from the people who follow these authoritarian systems. It's like we kind of have out of, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of out of uh, convenience or out of necessity, I guess is a better term, that we have to uh, sort of use that left-hand path term to make that distinction. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, yeah, it's kind of almost like taking something that was genuine and real and dynamic and uh, kind of crystallizing it, co-opting it, Mm-hmm. institutionalizing it and turning it into this stagnant kind of format or something you know mm-hmm. an institution essentially and uh, yeah you know it's interesting one of the really cool definitions of left hand path versus right hand path that I've heard was by uh, Joseph Campbell uh-huh. in one of his uh, lecture series that he had I can't remember the name of it but uh, basically he said that exact he said that uh, the right-hand path is the path of the the institutions, essentially, and uh, established cultural norms and traditions that you were raised in, uh, the status quo. Mm-hmm. And the left-hand path, he said, was the path of the hero. Mm-hmm. What that he had that he's written so much about, where you kind of become an outsider. Mm-hmm. somehow or another through uh you know whether it's chance or choice but you become an outsider go on some sort of quest you conquer and then you bring back the treasure to enrich the original society that you had been that you came out of mm-hmm. 
And so there's still there is that kind of reunification back uh, to re enrich that culture that you you came from, which I think is really interesting. And I and I think that that kind of can connect with that Luciferian drive to um, to share the light. Absolutely. And when you talk about the hero, the other thing that the hero does is he journeys into the unknown. You know, right. he, he journeys out into darkness. And so there's all these things that you have to have that that go along with that. Like you have to have courage. You have to be um, not afraid to be by yourself. Right. You have to be comfortable with your your aloneness. You have to yeah. be like, well, whatever's in the darkness, the um, excitement over discovering what's there is more valuable to me than it, that overpowers any sort of like fear or apprehension that I have out of it, that there's a, there's a need for me to do that. And so, um, yeah, so that totally makes sense. And then you can see where the whole concept of darkness comes into this. Yeah. The unknown essentially, right. Mm -hmm. Or the hidden, the, uh, the forbidden. Uh, now it's interesting. The other connection with hero, I find that, um, when people hear Luciferianism, a lot of times if they're, you know, uninitiated or, or just hearing it, they assume that it's a religion that worships Lucifer. Mm -hmm. uh, but I find that it's more like Luciferianism is more like heroism, where mm -hmm. you exhibit qualities of a light bringer. And mm -hmm. that's what makes you a Luciferianism is that you seek to embody the qualities of a, of a light bringer. Mm -hmm. And same with the uh, heroism, you are exhibiting the qualities of a hero, right? right? And I feel like you're not worshiping a hero. That's not heroism, right? right? <laughs> and same with Luciferianism, you're not worshiping Lucifer. You're trying to embody the the light bringer. Right. No, absolutely. I think that's uh, you, you hit upon a, a, a key thing about the left-hand path um, that that is a big uh, mindfuck for people trying to understand it when they're coming from a right-hand path point of view because the <laughs> right-hand path point of view is like worshiping and worshiping God. And so they think that, well, coming to another thing, well, I'm going to worship something else. And, and, and you do see certain New Age movements that they haven't like gotten over that. They've just sort of like, uh, you know, replaced, you know, the father God with a, with a mother goddess or, or something else. And they're still like following this, this worshipful this sort of mode when in actuality um the left-hand path is about dispensing with the concept of worship altogether right um yeah. and i know like um you know some of the uh you know anton LaVey um and other you know founding fathers of the left-hand path talked about self-worship you know to replace that and we worship the self but um you're absolutely right that that emulation of that of those patterns, emulation of those, those models or those arch archetypes of, of heroism, um, are what really, you know, the left-hand path is all about. Yeah. In a sense, it's kind of, you could compare it to assuming a God form in a mm -hmm. sense, rather than worshiping a God, you're assuming a God form. <laughs> right. Because if you're worshiping, then you're just back to, that's, that's what makes it obedience and, and authoritarianism, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just worship and, 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 and obey 
whatever the the master says, whatever the father says, whatever the the Lord says, whatever the boss you know tells you. <laughs> and that's another good point too, where um, I find that what we refer to as the right hand path tends to have these surrogate parent uh, parental figures in uh-huh. these uh, non physical parental surrogates. Whereas on the left-hand path, we try and be spiritually adult. You know, we, we're the adult spiritually. We don't revert to, you know, this childlike dependence or uh, reliance on some external parental-type character or role. Absolutely. That's a great point. I mean, the whole concept of Yahweh, you know, God the Father is like a means that you're you're essentially always a child you're always going to be a child so you have to imagine like if this was like um superimposed onto like real life imagine if your your father your parents like never like went away you never <laughs> like grew right they never died or they never kicked you out of the house at a certain point and they were just always there all looking over you telling you to you know eat your you know, eat your soup and like go to your room and don't come home late and, and, you know, all of this stuff. And, um, and, and that never, ever, ever change. And that would be your life for eternity. And that's what, to me, that's what Christianity is. That's, that's what the concept of Christianity is. You're never fully responsible for yourself. You never really get to grow up and be an adult. And in one sense, the left-hand path is about becoming an adult right in a spiritual sense it's because we have that that concept of like transformation that's one of the key ideas i i think one of the key features of the left-hand path is um the idea of self-deification but then also the idea of initiation that we grow through this process we go through a match uh, maturation process on a uh on a uh, more uh, i guess esoteric level yeah and uh yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, I find it funny. Um, I When you were mentioning that, I thought of a person that I knew in the past who actually she was, you know, quite, you know, she was older. Um, and uh, but her parents had never really gone away and they were well, very well off and she never really had to struggle in her life. She had, mm-hmm. you know, convinced herself that she had, right? <laughs> she had gone, you know, taken school and she had like, you know, worked and things like that, but she never she always had a safety net that was right just right underneath her. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. If she even just kind of barely fell backwards a little bit, it would just be right there catching her. Right. And I found that it really ended up stunting her emotional growth quite clearly like it was very very clear um and it's interesting too that you see when there's these people who have uh come from nothing and and built up an empire from the ground up and then their children are nothing like that at all Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh there are I, yeah, I've seen you know when I in the studies that I've done there are people that have been in that situation and their children they've specifically said oh no you're not automatically 
inheriting the empire. You got to work your way and into it. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's a good way to. They're trying. They're doing something to try and uh, create a sense of struggle in their in their children. So they have to. They understand what that means. What that trying to fight through that hardship because that's how we grow. If we don't have that, it, it stunts us. Right. And that also connects with the teaching in uh, Tibetan Buddhism where they have the different realms, right? Mm-hmm. You have the, the hell realm, you go all the way through, and you have like the human realm and the, the god realm and the Buddha realm. Well, they say that the human realm is ideal for achieving enlightenment because this the perfect balance of stress and struggle as well as a little bit of leisure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're in the hell realm, it's just constant, constant struggle and stress and there's no way of getting out of it. It's just, you're just in it forever and, you know, <laughs> kind of thing like it. It's, it's too harsh. And then the God realm, uh, it's too posh. It's too easy it's Mm -hmm. too um easy street and and they don't grow they don't evolve and they don't uh it it takes them forever to achieve enlightenment compared to a a human they say if you're born into the human realm uh then that gives you the the best chance of achieving enlightenment within a single lifetime Mm -hmm. out of being born into any of the realms right (laughs) Well, because you have to struggle more, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. But it's not so much that you lose all hope, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not so little that it's meaningless, you know, right. or token uh, struggle. But um, it's genuine struggle, you know. And but we have even within the human realm, we see that those. It's like, um, you know, how they say within each of the Sephiroth and the Tree of Life, you have an entire tree, right? Mm-hmm. Well, within the human realm, you kind of have, like, the hell layer of the human realm, and you have all the way up. And you have the god level of within the human realm, and these are the people that have never had to struggle their entire lives. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it's kind of like a miniature version of the entire... The, they, they've expanded it kind of thing. Right. Layer you know microcosms within macrocosms right no there's so much man there's so much uh wrapped up in all of that pattern because i mean to me that's also that's it's it's also the divine pattern of lucifer right that lucifer is like you know breaks away that's the first thing that lucifer does is break away (laughs) from my god the father he's a kid who's like you know you want to keep me here forever but I'm out, you know, I'm out of here. I can't stay here forever, you know, and talking about like, you know, the, the Miltonian model, you know, of like, you know, uh, war in heaven and everything. And, uh, you know, divine, you know, fall from grace, which is actually, uh, the, the, the ascension, right? Because finally I can be an adult, right? Finally I can grow on, on my own, you know? Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's, you, you know, there's, there, there's all sorts of like, uh, ramifications for this. I mean, it's the same thing if you get into like extreme, like, uh, communism and stuff that even in a, in a social level, it's like, it's, well, if, if people like never have to like make it on their own and they have like the state is like their father always taking care of them, then they never, 
you know, fully have an opportunity to, to grow up. So there's something within that that, uh, that that, again, goes back to these core ideas of the left-hand path of, like, individuality and freedom and stuff like that. And that's needed to be able to even start this uh, transformational process of growing up. Absolutely. And, uh, and I find that if you do have a community that has been kind of uh, taken care of in a sense, mm-hmm. uh, like say by the government or whatever, um, that they lose their sense of self-determination. Mm-hmm. They, and they gain this sense of entitlement and they become comfortable with a lot less than they're capable of just because it's given to them. Just, mm-hmm. It's just easy. Right. And there's all sorts of like um, little uh, uh, conformity personality sort of conformity tendencies that like arise with that, I think, where like when 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 the way to uh, succeed within this system is to be the most obedient, you know, then, yeah. it, then it, you know what I mean? Then it like totally changes the whole like, um, you know, social uh, milieu of things, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, so let me ask you this. So how did you find the path yourself? How did you get involved with occultism, left-hand path, all this stuff? Yeah, well, um, I guess it started back when I was a kid. Uh, the seeds, at least. Mm-hmm. So um, I wasn't really raised that religiously, but um, my parents consider themselves Christian, and they wanted to put me in Catholic school. Um, here in uh, Canada, I don't know how it is in, in the U.S., but we have uh, a Catholic school system as well as a public school system. And they both have a certain level of public funding, which is kind of weird. <laughs> but anyways, they wanted me to go to Catholic school. And um, Well, I didn't so- know that. So wait, now you said that the um, Catholic school in Canada is government funded? It has a certain level of government funding, yeah. Okay, I you- didn't know that. That's very interesting. That's interesting. <laughs> I did not know that. Okay, I'm sorry. Continue with your story. That's Yeah, and when you do your taxes... Um, you have to say whether you're supporting the, the public school system or the the Catholic school system. <laughs> wow. Do you get a better tax break one way or the other? No. No, it doesn't matter, but... It, it doesn't matter. It's just they just want to know that. They just want to... So what do they do with that? If they mark that down, whether you're like... I don't... It doesn't seem to make any difference, really. Like, would it make... If everybody in a certain, you know, district, you know, if they all said public... Would there not be any funding for the pre- the Catholic school in that district? Right. I don't. I don't that's, know. <laughs> it's kind of messed up. It's yeah. like a legacy thing from when uh, Catholicism had a much bigger role. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially in like Quebec. Uh, Quebec, it was huge for a very long time. Actually, for a long time, uh, they didn't give out birth certificates in Quebec. You would get your baptismal certificate and that would just essentially serve as your birth certificate for wow. a long, long it was for a long time i know people who were born in quebec that uh when they were born it, it was still that way it's changed now but um it wasn't that long ago wow and so just to update just to update our listeners if you didn't catch it before 
Jeremy lives in Toronto, Canada, right? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what were what were we? Uh... We were talking about how you found the left hand path, and we got oh, we, right. we we found out a rabbit hole of like statism, <laughs> church and statism, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which we all do. I mean, hey, we all have to deal with that. So. Yep. So um, they want to put me into Catholic school, but you have to be baptized. Uh-huh. And I wasn't baptized. They weren't that into it that they actually had me baptized as a baby. Um, so I was around four. I was about four years old when I got baptized. Uh-huh. And um, and I remember going to a mass at the church before beforehand. And this is a church that was kind of associated with the, the the grade school that they wanted to register me at. And uh, and I remember seeing the, the mass, and I was kept asking my mom questions like, what's going on, what's this, what's that? And uh, when I found out that the priest was turning the wine and bread into uh, blood and body of of uh jesus right and then everybody went and ate some of it uh-huh. you know that kind of blew my mind as a four-year-old uh-huh. right it's like <laughs> you got introduced to cannibalism <laughs> yeah it's pretty messed up and i was like whoa and and this guy is supposed to be our savior you know uh-huh. <laughs> you know yeah. and uh it, it seemed like a, a form of of real magic to me right mm-hmm. but i kind of thought uh you know that the, the priest wasn't doing a very good job of it because he was just droning on and, and it didn't sound like he was he believed anything that he was saying that's mm-hmm. what I, I remember thinking when i was a kid and uh, and i was thinking you know what this is so cool i want to do it but i'm going to do it so good <laughs> i'm going to do it so good that when the people come up they're going to they're going to put the bread in their mouth. They're going to spit it out because they're going to be like, oh, wow, this tastes like actual flesh. <laughs> and, um, uh, I, you know, that was kind of my uh, fantasy as a little kid is that I was, that I was going to be a priest and I was going to be so good that it would, that people would, would be surprised that, that the, the body and blood was actually tasting like body and blood. <laughs> And so I had that calling to the priesthood from like a very young age, and uh, that led me towards um, you know reading the Bible very very early, and um, that led me to realize that the stories in the Bible are not always what they what they tell you, <laughs> you know they tell you the nice parts, uh, but then when you read it you get the full story. And I had to ask my parents. I said, well. What what's going on here? Because I'm reading this Old Testament, and what they're describing as God sounds much more like a like a monster or a demon than, you know, from from my own you know understanding of right and wrong. You know, this character that they're describing as God sounds much more like some sort of demon or or evil yeah. entity. And so that was kind of the the beginnings of me uh, having that Gnostic kind of worldview and um as i went forward you know i eventually realized that that catholicism wasn't for me you know partly one of the reasons was because i always felt like i wanted to start a family i always wanted to have a family 
And of course, as a Catholic priest, you have to vow celibacy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I wonder if if I had been raised Anglican, if maybe I would have stayed in it because mm-hmm. it, I wouldn't have had enough pressure to to or enough. Uh, maybe I wouldn't have had enough things that that I disagreed with. Maybe right. I don't know. Well, they, just, it's still the Bible, though. They still they still go to the Bible. So you're still like that, stuck with the yeah. fact that you read about God in the Bible, and it's like, well. He's like jealous. He like kills. He's actually a dick, you know. He's actually like all the things yeah. that the priesthood tells you about it, and then you read about it. And it's like no, he's like actually the bad guy, you know. <laughs> yeah. He like rapes people and you know destroys cities, <laughs> you know. People who didn't even know about him, you know. He like you know he's gonna send him to hell to like burn forever. He's kind of a asshole, you know. Yeah, and sometimes just on a whim it seems. <laughs> yeah, just on a whim, you know. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And all the innocent babies he kills, like oh, yeah. it's it's ridiculous the number of innocent babies God yeah. kills in the Bible. Yeah, and that's like the Gnostic thing you mentioned. The Gnostic, I mean, there's like a you know Gnostic sects who're like you know the whole the whole truth is that the God that's like talked about in the Bible that's actually the bad guy who like right. took it over, you know, took things over, and like the good guy is actually you know the hidden one, you know. The hidden yes. dark, the hidden dark <laughs> principle of like consciousness and life and light and everything that that doesn't want to lord over us and control us, but represents this um, this principle that we we somehow partake of, and that we can you know emulate as a model as a divine model. Yeah, and so when I was around. Um... I mean, I was exposed to things like I learned tea leaf reading from my dad when I was pretty young. And um, my mom uh, triggered my first lucid dream um, because I was telling her about the nightmares I had as a little kid. And she said, oh, well, it's your dream. Don't let them push you around Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of thing. And that kind of blew my mind. I was like, whoa, I can do that. And then the next time I had a nightmare, I did it. And that was first lucid dream wow and then i've i've had them ever since um not every single night but then when i got to a teenager and i started exploring some of these other things that was one of the things that i looked into uh, a lot more um that you could i did found out that there are things you can do to make them more frequent and i started doing them and started having more frequent lucid dreams wow and um, i started exploring all these other different things and um I still felt that strong calling to the priesthood, uh, but I knew that Catholicism wasn't for me. And so I started kind of exploring alternate spiritual systems in order to try and still kind of feel that fulfillment of that that desire that I had, uh, that calling to the priesthood. Um, so I found um, hermetic-style ceremonial magic. Mm-hmm. And I started studying and practicing that, as well as uh, the tarot. Um, those were some of the main things that I got into when I was around 17. And uh, that led me to end up joining uh, an esoteric branch of Freemasonry, mm-hmm. uh, a, co- a co-masonic order. And I was quite active in that for a while. That led me to um, forms of Gnosticism, actually, uh, not Christian Gnosticism, mm-hmm. 
and I found uh, a bishop here in Toronto that was uh, actually, at the time, uh, the preeminent, uh, you could say, arch Archbishop of Canada for the Gnostic Church, and uh, I entered into uh, tuition, uh, direct um, mentorship relationship with him, and basically four or five times a month we would get together um actually it was more like six four private and then two we had uh meetings that we would um conduct mm -hmm. that other people would come to but then the other every every week we had a you know i would go to his place and we would do uh ceremony and we would study um texts and things like that and that was for about four years straight we did that and along the way I got ordained into the minor and major holy orders all the way up to and including priest um, and then that fifth year I spent serving the congregation of the Gnostic Church in Toronto and then I kind of ex started exploring other things too um, now he my bishop knew that I knew knew what my thoughts on Lucifer were, and he agreed with them mostly. <laughs> so he knew that before I entered into that situation with him. So he was like, "Oh yeah, that's pretty much what I think about Lucifer too," you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I found out as I went a couple years into this um, and getting to know some of the other people in the community, like in the in the U.S. and things like that too. Um, some of the other clergy priests and bishops of, uh, from other areas, um, I started to realize that they were very into Lucifer as well. Wow. But some of them, they didn't really want to necessarily come out and say that. Right. Uh, um, because it, but because they were calling themselves Christian, but they're calling themselves Gnostic Christian, right? Mm -hmm. And I started putting out these lessons that I was writing anonymously because I wasn't sure, you know, how it would be taken and um, I started putting out these lessons under the name darkness visible study group mm -hmm. and I found that some of the people that were joining this is uh, coordinated through a Yahoo email group <laughs> okay. do you remember those oh yeah Where totally someone would send an email and then everybody in the group would get it oh, yeah that's just basically how it worked absolutely what about all do you remember like the alt dot thing the that alt news familiar. groups there was like alt satanism and uh oh, well, that yes. was the main one yeah and it's like <laughs> i don't even know what that stuff was I, I don't even know what what happened to that i don't i it's it's not around anymore that was like kind of pre the yahoo groups and after that it was like yahoo groups but yeah right. I, 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 I totally remember yahoo groups yeah i was there i was there <laughs> i was there in the trenches <laughs> so i created a a Gnostic Luciferianism Yahoo group and I started writing okay. lessons under the the name Darkness Visible Study Group and I was getting all these people that I knew from the Gnostic Church that were clergy, like even bishops, joining to to read these lessons. <laughs> and here wow. I am. Like at the time I think I was uh not even a deacon yet. I think I was like a subdeacon or something. And how and, old how old were you at this time then? Uh must have been let me think here. About twenty-three. Okay. Somewhere around there, twenty 
23, 24, maybe 25. Okay. Uh, because I joined the Mason, the, the Masonic group when I was 21. That was the old, the youngest you could be, uh, unless you had a parent that was also in it that signed off on it. And so I joined as early as you could for that. And, uh, and then it was a, a couple of years later, maybe, uh, a few years. Um, I don't think I was 25 yet, but maybe that, that would be the oldest that I would have been at that point. But yeah, I had these people that were bishops in the, in the Gnostic church that I was part of <laughs> joining to read these lessons that I was writing on Gnostic, what I was calling Gnostic Luciferianism at the time. Mm-hmm. Nobody was really using the the term. That was, I think, it was actually it must have been around two thousand two that I started writing those. Okay. So, uh, um, and I was born seventy eight. So okay. I don't know. Do the math. I guess I would be uh, twenty four. Okay. <laughs> That's when I started writing those. Uh, so I thought that was really neat, and uh, and then I, I revealed my identity. Um, I was going by. Uh, Luciferous Pripsol, okay. which is a, a Enochian for um, the brightness of the heavens. Ah, okay. In the Enochian language, um, so that's what I was going by. But then I was like, "Oh, hey, it's me," <laughs> you know, because I knew a lot of these people that uh-huh. were joining. I thought it was funny, and they were like, "Oh, yeah, well, don't tell." Uh, some of them said, "Oh, cool, well, don't tell." Uh, anybody else that I'm part of this guy. <laughs> you so know? you basically you came you came out of the closet so to speak. Yeah. Because uh I was interested in this kind of stuff but it it was supposed to be a little bit on the down low. Mm-hmm. Um and even actually when um I was I was part of the Martinist order mm-hmm. and that was part of my training in the Gnostic church. Mm-hmm. Uh that my bishop considered it part of the training. And um when I got my third degree SI, which is a superior in Kanu or unknown superior degree, uh, you have to pick uh, a nomen or a magical name. Mm-hmm. And and I picked Lucifer. I All think right, it's just what, go what right, but just go right for it, it yeah. man. Don't hold back. <laughs> just just go for it. Go for yeah, the gusto. Exactly. Why why <laughs> you know mince terms, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, Lucifer, that's, you know, it's a Latin wor- word, you know, yeah. a Latin motto is a very traditional thing to use as a, a magical nomen. And uh, my bishop said, ah, no, what's it? <laughs> like, yeah, um, you know, about that name. Uh... <laughs> so he said, you know what, some of the people in the congregation don't really understand the way that we talk about Lucifer, you know, they, they're still kind of stuck with this kind of the modern folklore about this character that people think of as Lucifer. Yeah, as a Satan. uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they don't quite get it, right? They don't quite get the way that we're talking about it. And so uh, he goes, so just use Lucian instead. Okay. And uh, and I was like, ah. Okay. I okay. Man, yeah. that's just like that Star Trek. Do you remember uh, the Star Trek cartoon? No. There was a Saturday morning 
Star Trek cartoon in the 70s. If you go look for this on YouTube, you'll find Star Trek cartoon. And there's an episode where they find a, a planet. And um, and it's like it's like Spock and, and, and Kirk and all the regular guys, but they're just, you know, cartoons. Mm-hmm. And um, they find this planet, and there's this guy who's like obviously – the devil, right? He's red. He's got red skin. He's got horns. He's got goat hooves. And they're talking to him. He's an alien and everything. And his name is Lucian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know who he's supposed to be. So uh, that uh, that is all to say that like Lucian, when someone goes by Lucian, look, you know who they are. It's like <laughs> Lucifer. <laughs> Lucifer was already a cover up for something, right? And then Lucian is like just another one. So, but. Anyhow, I'm sorry. Go on with your story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, we'll do that. Um, but, uh, and you know why it's funny? Because uh, part of the reason that I ended up leaving that um, was because I felt like I couldn't explicitly be who I really was. Sure. And you know what's funny? It's the same thing with that Masonic order. Mm-hmm. As I was going through that Masonic order, I kind of, it was actually that that kind of triggered me to realize that Luciferianism was kind of what I was all about. And um, the word Lucifer really kind of burned into my brain. And um, I was like, yes, that, that's it. That's mm-hmm. it right there. That's what I was looking for when I joined this in the first place, if I'm being really honest with myself. Um and uh, it just kind of really came into focus really in a very powerful way while I was contemplating some of the stuff that that I experienced in the Masonic ritual, actually. Um, and I was in this is this is a the headquarters in Colorado mm-hmm. for this particular uh, Masonic order. and the the head of it, um she's like a 33rd degree mason and all that stuff right and she's the head of the of that particular order and i was walking around in the mountains with her one one summer and in colorado and i said to her well you know that uh you know the rooster that that we experience in one of the rituals what how do you interpret that? What do you think that that is? And uh, she was like, oh, well, I can only tell you what my interpretation is. You have, you can have your own interpretation, you know, but mine, I don't want you to think that what my interpretation is is the right one or whatever, right? You, and I said, yeah, yeah. And um, she said, she started going on about the rising sun and enlightenment and, and things like that, right? And uh, and I said, oh, okay, because I thought it was Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> and she uh, stopped walking for like a split second, skipped a step basically, and then and then kept walking almost like she was pretending not to have been affected. And uh, <laughs> and then she uh, paused, and then she said, "Why do you think that?" And then I started explaining. Um, I said, "Well." You know, the it calls forth the rising sun, you know, kind of like the morning star, Venus, you know, and I made all these connections, uh, Venus, the, the rising, you know, all that stuff. Um, 
And uh, and then she, when I finished, I just stopped. I, I, I just finished saying it, and then I just waited. And it was the, the silence was growing more and more uncomfortable, but I wasn't going to let her off, you know, and say, mm-hmm. ah, whatever, you know. Right. <laughs> I was just going to wait. And, and eventually she uh, stopped and she turned to me and she said, so you figured it out. Whoa. I know. And I was like, oh, man. Whoa. <laughs> and uh, she goes, but but you know what? I, I don't want you going around telling everybody because a lot of the people here consider themselves Christian or when they hear the word Lucifer, they think Satan instantly and they think evil and they mm-hmm. think bad. And, and they I don't want people to think that they're being tricked into worshiping Satan, you know? <laughs> right. And, uh, and I was like, uh, well, maybe I will, maybe I'll keep it to myself. Maybe I won't. <laughs> right. But, um, I, it's, it's interesting. Um, and I, I talked to some of the other people that were very high up and, um, and some of them seemed to know exactly what I was talking about. And some of them seemed to have not, a clue as to that connection I was making. Even there were a couple, even 33rd degree Masons that I made a couple connections. I said, well, what about this and this? And they're like, oh, geez, I, you know what? I never thought of that. Right. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of interesting, but the head of the order and the couple, the, the few, the, the people that were in the very highest positions, they all, or two out of the three at least, um, were, knew what I meant by that and and were all about it but they just weren't explicit about it right because uh, and that was part of the reason I left that one as well uh-huh. <laughs> because I kind of felt like it, it wasn't right it was almost like uh, using people as resources kind of tricking them into contributing their 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 energy and their their money even right their yeah. bo- their their bodies, you know, uh, to the, the, uh, the work of the order, um, and not really realizing what it was about at the deeper esoteric level. You know, it's like, I totally get what you're saying. And, 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 and not to talk smack about masonry. I know, you know I, I know a lot of people who are involved with masonry and stuff, but it, 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 it always seems like there's sort of this ambiguity in it, you know, like there is, you know, within masonry, there's like, well, there's this concept of like, you know, working on the self and transformation and initiation and stuff. But there's also sort of this like, you know, appeasing, you know, the community, you know, working for the community. And, and there's definitely like this Christian element uh, that 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 pervades through it. So, you know, it's like I get I get why uh, some people um, get something out of it. But uh, for myself. Um, I think I would feel, I think I would probably have kind of the same reaction that, that, that I think you're describing here that, you know, well, there's this aspect of it that is like, there's this, this, this kernel of truth within it. I'm interested in that. I want to know what that's about. You know, yeah. that's why, that's why I'm involved with any kind of initiatory pursuit. I want to know what's really going on. I don't want to serve someone, any group or organizations need to maintain some sort of sense of order or tradition or something like that. I want to know what's going on. That's why I'm here. You know, that's why I'm an explorer. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) 
and I felt I, I kind of felt bad, you know, because as I kind of explored this that I this this knowledge that I discovered, uh, there were people there were kind of two factions. There were people from all degrees that even, you know, right from entered apprentice first degree and, uh, and up that were kind of in on it. And then there were people from, from all the way up to the very top of like, in terms of degree structure, that there were 33rd degree members that didn't really know that aspect of it. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of interesting, you know, that uh, you hear about, you know, these conspiracy theories about how Freemasonry is really Luciferian. And and I, there is an element of truth to that idea. But I think that there are people that that aren't in it for that. And they get what they get out of it, which is different, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that's valid as well. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that they're necessarily, you know, being tricked into worshiping Lucifer or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think there is a certain element, at least in the one that I was a part of. Um, and I don't think it's the same everywhere. I think that this is, you know, uh, at least ha- in the one that I was part of, the, the people at the very top were part of that Luciferian ele- element too, at least two out of the three. Mm-hmm. Um, the third one, he was actually a, um, a liberal Catholic priest and he wasn't as into that, uh, that Luciferian aspect of it, mm-hmm. which is interesting. I find, um, he was married to one of the people that were into the Luciferian part of it. <laughs> okay. But if you asked him about, if you asked him about the light bringer or whatever, he'd be like, ah, no, 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 yeah. whatever. Right. Right. Uh, but if you ask his wife, she'd be like, oh, yeah, Lightbringer. Right. So this is all, you know, this also reminds me of, you know, Anton LaVey had this, like, saying about, like, um, the people who want to uh, play the devil's game but don't want to take the devil's name kind of thing. <laughs> and, you know, you, you see this all over. Like, if you go, you know, in the occult and New Age community, you know, these groups that, like, kind of flirt. Right. They kind of flirt with the idea of the Prince of Darkness. It's just, you know, I just want to play with it a little bit, you know. I don't want to get too – I don't want to get all involved with it, though, you know. Just uh, play with it a little bit, you know, kind of thing. <clears throat> Lima. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But anyhow, so you were going through this process of like seeing that there's like this kernel of truth within this teaching or this aspect that resonated with you very deeply, yet other aspects of the organization that seemed, uh, I guess you would say, unwilling to fully acknowledge that aspect of it. So where did you go? Where did you go with things from there? Uh, Yeah, well, actually, um, I became a member of the OTO. Okay. (laughs) And, and I, yeah. <laughs> so I explored that for a little bit. I was kind of a hang around for uh, roughly a year, but this is partly while I, while I was involved with other stuff. And then uh, I I took the plunge and I got my Minerva. Um, and actually, I became a major part of the local group. Um, I became the treasurer. And I essentially co-ran the the local body with the the um, the lodge master or the I can't remember what they call it. 
time. The person who had the initiatory charter or whatever, uh-huh. um, her and I basically ran the group together. And I even was a black guard in one of the initiations or a couple of the initiations. Uh, so like an officer, uh, even though I was just Minerva, um, just before I became uh, first degree, the a bunch of crap went down and headquarters shut down our local body <laughs> oh what happened so what now what year was this oh jeez. is it the 80s or the 90s no this 2000s in the 2000s okay this is like um must have been around uh i don't know 2004 or something like that okay okay gotcha <laughs> and so you got shut down by your 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 group got shut down by the central group or what happened? Yeah, by headquarters, international headquarters okay. shut down, revoked our charter. Okay. Um, Why'd they do that? The thing is, there was already a, a local body in Toronto that had a charter called Amon Raw Lodge. Okay. And they and and actually the the international head of the OTO. The outer head of the order, OHO. Is that the uh, uh, Hymenaeus Beta? Yeah. Okay. HB. So, right. So he was actually initiated in Amon Ra Lodge in Toronto, mm-hmm. and you know ended up going off uh, to the states and stuff like that. But uh, that's where he was initiated, and um, somebody had gotten a charter to start another lodge in Toronto, but I guess they maybe had used a slightly different name like one of the like outer boroughs of toronto or something maybe Uh i don't know how i don't know how they did it but they managed to get a a charter for another toronto lodge and that's usually a no-no um but the thing is amon ra had been dormant for at least a year and a half Uh they hadn't had a single meeting uh they weren't responding to correspondence anything nothing like that they were you know, completely dormant. And if you tried to ask them about something, they would, if the, if you did get a response, it would be aggressive and uh, rude, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so basically somebody were like, well, okay, well, we're just going to step sidestep this and start another one. Mm-hmm. Right. And so uh, somebody founded triumphant lodge, the ironically named triumphant lodge. Okay. <laughs> And, uh, and that's what I joined. I didn't realize that there was this kind of almost like a split. Um, but uh, that's what I joined. And I didn't know about the poli- the local politics at that point. But um, basically somebody leaked that there was a, two charters in the same city. And HB decided he was going to shut down the, the one that was doing at least – three meetings a month, two of them open to the public, uh-huh. and and leave the one that had been dormant for at least a year and a half and not doing anything and leave that one open. For some, I, I would get, <laughs> probably for some political reason or something, right? Nostalgia, maybe. Nostalgia, gotcha. And uh, so, we, yeah, we got shut down, and that left a really bad taste in my mouth. And so I was offered to, I was like, well, they, they said, well, you could get initiated in MRA. And I said, well, no, I can't because they're not doing anything. They, they, and they hate me. 
you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, even though we invited them to every single one of our meetings. But um, they said, well, you could go to Buffalo and, and uh, do it there at Pyramid Lodge. Um, and I said, you know what? I'm just not going to not going to bother. Right. Uh, I like those guys. You know, those people are cool. Uh, but, uh, I'm just not gonna, I, I'm just kind of done with that. And, uh, actually I briefly went back to the golden Dawn, which I kind of skipped over. I was a member of the golden Dawn for about a year in there somewhere. <laughs> and then after I left the OTO, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back to the golden Dawn. And, uh, I was back there for about four months when I was like, you know what? Nope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like. When I went back, it was it had been different from when I was in it previously. Uh, it had gotten a lot more like group mind, hive mind, uh, culty. Mm-hmm. So it seemed almost like when I joined, rejoined it. I remember this one incident. Uh, I had rejoined at the degree that I had left at, which. Um, was Zelator um, and I was asked to I, I went to with him the first meeting I went back to the the guy that was running the local group um, he asked me to lead the, the ceremony or part of the ceremony anyways and uh, and so I did the I believe it was the LBRP the Lesser Banishing Ritual of Pentagram and the uh, vibrations that I did mm-hmm. I had a different style by that point and I was doing it kind of like throat singing almost and uh, and I was I would do I was doing my vibrations in a throat singing style which has you know, as I'm sure you know kind of a deep uh, kind of spooky mm-hmm. uh, sound to it and um, halfway through he came up to me and he whispered in my ear and he goes can you do more uh angelic sounding vibrations because some of the newer members are getting a little scared. You were scaring them with your guttural, like <laughs> your yeah. guttural vocal emanations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and some of them knew that I had recently been in the OTO as well. And the golden Dawn doesn't like. Crowley. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so they were already a little, some of them were a little scared of me with some of the newer members just from that. And uh, so I thought that was pretty funny, and I, I finished it in a, you know, in a d- less intimidating fashion. But <laughs> you toned it a- down. <laughs> 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 okay. But basically, you know, as I, you know, experienced it, it, it was at maximum four months, and I was like, you know what, this is feels like uh, a Catholic, you know esoteric catholic cult you know mm-hmm. and i think uh, the head of the, the the that particular golden dawn that i was part of at that point was uh zinc robert zinc mm-hmm. he has a very bad reputation but he there was a picture of him up in the temple um dressed like mathers and i was being i was told by couple of the members there that he was a reincarnation of mathers wow yeah so some of the members were telling me this This yeah he's a reincarnation of mathers and they were almost you know almost looking at him like he was uh 
an ascended being or something, you know. And it, it just really started to uh, grate on me. And <laughs> no, I think uh, whenever people start talking about reincarnation, it's time to it's time to run. And you know, one of the things that you mentioned is is you know, like this experience of going back to the golden dawn. I think this is one of the like lessons of the left hand path is this idea that you can't go back. Yeah. You know, you can only go forward. And there's mm-hmm. like, you know, there's all this mythology about that. You know, Adam and Eve, they leave the garden, you know, they get the, the wisdom of the serpent. They leave the Garden of Eden and they realize, shit, we can't go back, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's the same thing. Like, I, I think somewhere in, um, you know, in uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost or the Diabolicon, um, which is another uh, a book that tells that whole story, um, that... You know, the demons get to a point after they go through this, like, you know, getting out of, you know, this, all this trouble to break out of heaven. And they say, well, should we go? they realize really, you know, you can't go back. There's no way we can go back to that. The only direction is to forge on into the darkness and the great unknown. And to me, that's the essence of the left hand path. So getting back to your situation in the Golden Dawn, then once you realized all these things, what did you do next? Uh, well, I kind of uh, decided to kind of forge uh, out on my own, mm-hmm. and um, so I was exploring the left-hand path more freely and and uh, on my own terms, and just reading everything that I could get a hold of, um, coming up with my own ideas about things, um, investigating the. Uh, the copper thread through um, the uh, hermetic tradition and, and such that I, that I kind of discovered where you have this um, Luciferian current that you see, this hidden, um, almost secret Luciferian current running behind a lot of this uh, hermetic stuff mm-hmm. that isn't explicitly stated, but if you can read into it... You, you realize, oh, okay, well, they're kind of talking about this light bearer, this light bringer, uh, rebellious uh, giver of forbidden knowledge kind of archetype that that, that is there, right? And, um, you know, even through, like, a Gnosticism and uh, the whole, like, Merkabah, you know, you have these things where you, you're seeking apotheosis and you're doing it kind of against the will of the gods. You you know, you're kind of uh, coming up. Now, can you explain uh, what apotheosis, what do you mean by that? Well, the, you know, dictionary definition is essentially uh, the deification of something or someone. Um, so you could say that Alexander the Great achieved a certain level of, of apotheosis even while he was alive because he kind of took on that persona of a of a Greek god uh-huh. and, and you know really embodied it in his in his life and people responded to that by even some people even believing him as a as a literal demigod while he was alive even and uh, even if you, you don't take that into consideration, he 
established a legacy with his life that was so powerful, you know, I can just say Alexander. Uh, that's all I have to say, and you know exactly who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And he lived, what, like thousands, a couple thousand years old ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we still know who Alexander is, you mm-hmm. know? I named my son after him, by the way. Wow. <laughs> um, so, you know, he achieved a level of apotheosis, you know, I would say for sure. Sure. And um, so that's at least on one level. And you have uh, on, a, on a more deeper esoteric level, there's a, a possibly nobody really knows. I'm not going to claim that I know what happens after the physical body stops working after, after you know, after death. Um, I say that with finger quotes because uh, I think that the, the definition of death keeps changing as we go forward in time you know back even just say like i don't know what like 80 years ago or so if somebody had a heart attack and fell on the ground uh people would just consider them dead you know now you just say oh the person is not showing any signs you know but you don't consider them dead yet because right there are things that can revive them yeah, but if you had done those things, if you started doing CPR like 80 years ago and somebody had collapsed in the middle of the street, you'd be arrested for uh, molesting a corpse. Sure. That's a good point. Right? Yeah. So uh, death, I think, is is a concept that uh, keeps getting pushed further and further. And I mm-hmm. think that maybe death doesn't even really exist. I think that perhaps uh, what you are is a pattern mm-hmm. and if that pattern comes together again somehow then that's you still mm-hmm. even if you know and it could the pat that same pattern could exist in multiple places at once at the same time even potentially but uh that's going down another rabbit hole <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah apotheosis i think that there is a possibility that we could achieve some sort of um afterlife state that is um, somewhat godlike in in the way that we perceive it and that is another element of apotheosis oh, it kind of connects to alchemy I would say as well mm-hmm. like you have in alchemy um, essentially you take uh, base matter and really you're just taking away from it Mm-hmm. until you get down to the quintessence of it. Mm-hmm. And then that quintessence is immortal. Right. No, there's like a, you, you get down to the, uh, the, 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 the pure essence of it. So I would think of, uh, in terms of like consciousness, the, 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 the sense of self that you have, which, which seems to have no beginning and seems to have no end right as we experience it um through life but we also know that our physical body goes through these processes it sprung into existence at one you know it came from matter at, at one point and it and it goes for a certain while and then there's a point at which um which whatever that essence is that essence that makes something alive eventually eventually leaves that right and and mm-hmm. just just from what we see from it happening to other people, right? And there's a point at which 
there's a point at which that essence of what that person was, the, their identity, you know, that self of theirs is no longer present, and this is this this is not them anymore. This is just some some flesh garbage stuff that's going to rot. We need to put it away, you know, respectfully. Somewhere right. else. Somewhere else. That that core essence, that quintessence of the what the person is, isn't really being represented by that the physical body that they we're utilizing right that's the thing it's like we all just universally recognize that identity is not there that that person that we knew is not there they're not there anymore it's not them anymore you know um and 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 so that's just you know uh validation that what is the soul and everything is self and identity and it's all wrapped up in in the same thing and we might not know and and i respect that you say that you know i I'm not going to, you know, pretend like I know what happens after, you know, the, the body like falls away, but you know, from your own experience of experiencing life and being here, that there is this possibility of, again, moving forward of like becoming something process of self deification, initiation, these things we work on to like forge, to forge out there and, and, in in one sense, I think that that's like one of the things that the um, the Luciferian pattern gives us is that going back to like what you were talking about with the archetype of the hero and everything that the courage to forge into darkness because that's the ultimate forging into darkness. That's the ultimate unknown that we all yeah. you know that we're all gonna forge yeah. into at some point, right? Right. Yeah. The point where our physical bodies stop working right right so um the other thing too i feel like as as i you know as i go forward um and learn more i find that consciousness i think that this is this is you know something that's come to me even just in the past few years uh that consciousness itself i think is fetishized within the occult. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, it's the demiurge. I think that our conscious conscious mind is the demiurge. It's the false God. It's the false self. Because I think that we identify, it's really easy to identify with your consciousness. Mm -hmm. you know, your conscious mind you think of as you. But uh, the more, the more, you know, I learn, the more I study, the more I meditate, um, the more I experience, you know, life-changing, mind-altering experiences, um, such as lucid dreaming. Mm -hmm. um, the more I start to feel that consciousness is, is not me, mm -hmm. that my conscious mind is not me, and that what, what I'm trying to achieve with apotheosis is not that conscious mind existing without the body. I think that that, that, that when the physical body is dead, um, that 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 conscious mind might not be there either. That that conscious mind might go with it, mm -hmm. but that the consciousness is just more like just a tool. It's an emergent property that 
comes out of this complex interaction of of mind and thought and body and sense um but that it's not us it's a tool that we have access to sometimes <laughs> well i think i i think i see what you're saying and the way that i look at that is that um consciousness and 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 the concept of that and talking about that is a way for us to try and get back to just the experience of self of like me existing right here now just you know in this moment and you'd spend time you know doing different exercises or meditation whatever to get to that moment and you realize it's not always you're not really conscious most of the time right throughout our daily yeah. you know stuff we're we're doing things on autopilot and we do a lot of things fairly mechanically and um um the 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 idea of like fetishizing aspects of it i think people like mistake the intellect right it's not the same thing as like thinking right consciousness is not the same thing of as as thinking about stuff thinking and the intellect that's another function and emotions in the heart that's a function that i have and then we also create different like uh, personas and masks and other in in order to deal with other people and deal with the universe around mm -hmm. us and we forget about this this core kernel you know um that that exists within us like to me that's like the symbolism of uh the idea of the black flame the idea of fire in there um, so, you know, hey, so that's that's one thing that um, I saw you talk about in um, your book, Initiation into the Left-Hand Path, which is um, you're working on that now. That's going to be released soon, right? That's something there. It's a work in progress. Well, yeah, I put out an advanced edition uh -huh. limited, in limited form um, a couple of years ago. Uh, I put out um, 45 uh, signed and numbered copies. Uh, which uh, were, you know, sold out long ago. But I'm coming out with a new edition that's going to be more kind of not limited. <laughs> right. Uh, so basically, you, you know, it's not going to sell out. Um, anybody who wants it will have the ability to buy it um, in some form or another. Awesome. Uh, but yeah, I'm gonna. I, I'm. I've been expanding it, and um, I wanted to put some more artwork in it and some of that artwork has been finished up i'm still waiting on a couple pieces um same artist uh, tasha maneri um but yeah i have an additional ceremony and uh, some additional material and, and just uh, updated a little bit of it um and i wanted to put that out uh sometime this year well, I look forward to that. The version that you shared with me, um, I thought was really cool, and I'd like the artwork in it. it. Was really awesome. And then you talked about this idea of stoking the black flame, and that's what I wanted to to get to mm -hmm. right there. Because to me, that like something about that is 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 relating to the core essence of all this. So, could you talk a little bit about what stoking the black flame means to you? Yeah. So. Um, a lot, a lot of that, uh, so I have the, a ceremony in, in there that I refer to as stoking the black flame. And what that ceremony does is it, it's kind of like, um, if you're familiar with the, the Kabbalistic cross mm -hmm. from the, 
that you start and end the lesser banishing ritual the pentagram with um, where you you're tracing lines of energy and activating energy centers within the 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 body or the the astral body you know overlaid on the physical body you're doing some of those same things uh, but it's done in in a way that is more explicitly left-hand path um you're not you're not trying to align your microcosm with the macrocosm specifically you're trying to more um activate and um uh get in motion Mm -hmm. elements within the self and it's very heavily inspired by a lot of this uh, Taoist internal alchemy. So let's say, for example, if you're trying to raise energy, um, I, th- I believe in Dragon Rouge, they do, they start off most of their ceremonies with some sort of uh, Kundalini raising meditation. Um, at least that's what I read in, in a, there's a, somebody wrote a thesis about it that I found online. It's quite extensive. And he mentioned that in there. Um, well, with the Kundalini raising, you're, you're, you're taking energy that's low, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, low frequency, um, sexual energy, even you could say, and raising it up through the, to the cranium through the spine and then out the top of the head. Um, that's at least how it's visualized. Um, and to me, that's, that's kind of like your, I don't know. Uh, I felt like a left-hand path version, it kind of makes sense to, to cycle the energy through the self mm-hmm. you're not you're not a channel for energy raising up from the from lower level to higher level and shooting it out into the universe you know you're not a channel that's that's translating energy or or pass being a you know a, a vehicle that energy passes through you know you're mobilizing energies within the self and you're cycling it through the self um, kind of like in the uh, the secret of the golden flower, I think it is. Yeah, uh, where they say that you just move the energy, you cycle the energy, and then it crystallizes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like what I in the stoking of the black flame, rather than shoot energy up through the top of your head, you you raise up energy and then it goes down the front and creates a cer- a cycle. And this is heavily inspired by a lot of the Taoist internal alchemy stuff. Mm-hmm. They do that kind of same energy work in that, but I've westernized it and uh, overlaid um, Gnostic Luciferian kind of symbol symbolism over top of it. Mm-hmm. So you've got these three energy centers um, that I refer to as, you know, salt sulfur and mercury um that are essentially in the um 
the what like the the, the lowest one of the is the sexual one and then you've got the uh emotional one and then you've got the mental one kind of thing mm-hmm. salt sulfur mercury and you are uniting and mixing those in a kind of an alchemical kind of process mm-hmm. and, and cycling it through and creating it. Um, you're strengthening the self. You're, you're increasing your own internal integrity, mm-hmm. your personal integrity uh, in a symbolic manner. And you're raising energy at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a ground and center. Mm-hmm. You're kind of, you know, placing yourself in this state. You're 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 getting yourself organized and uh, mobilizing the various different elements of the self and uh, harmonizing them, rather than trying to connect with external things. You're 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 activating, mobilizing, and harmonizing internal elements. Wow. That's some intense stuff, man. So, um, let's like back up a little bit. So it was a bit of a ramble. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I think we got there. (laughs) Right. No, we got there. We totally got there. So, so let's, let's back up for a minute though. Let's, let's get back into the uh, time mode of this. We like, uh, we, we, we got it. We're getting into some intense stuff here. So how did you go from, um, where you were working with, um, these other groups to where the greater church of Lucifer started to come into being, because I feel that's like kind of a, 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 a pinnacle point, a pinnacle transformational moment. How did all of that stuff happen? Yeah. So I, you know, was exploring on my own, um, and, and studying and, and, trying to figure out what what it all meant to me and as i was starting to to come into these concepts that that really resonated and uh fully fully um work out what luciferianism meant to me i started to feel like you know what it would be cool to to connect with other people who are of like mind and um I, I do like that kind of that group work that that whole uh, working in a group right that, that it, it's something that I really like no you got to connect with it you got to connect with other people um, if you're like working something. with these ideas and working with you know uh, esoteric ideas you've got to connect with other people and connect with a school and so this was like with uh, your golden dawn experience you're coming from the golden dawn you went back to the golden dawn and <laughs> and it was like this is not happening and so now you're moving on from there Right. And so I started to think, you know what, I'm going to create my own order, uh, a Luciferian order, right? That that's, uh, talks about this whole Gnostic interpretation of Luciferianism um, because I didn't really see that out there. You know, I was right. I started writing articles about it, but it wasn't really something that, that I found out there. Um, you know, there was like... Uh, there were a few similar things like like what Michael Ford was putting out, uh, but that wasn't exactly Gnostic Luciferianism. It was more like a form of uh, sabbatic witchcraft. Mm-hmm. You know, 
he was coming at it from a little bit of a different angle and uh, it wasn't so much Gnostic interpretation of some of these stories uh, but it was more of a kind of a pagan traditional witchcraft kind of thing mm-hmm. right and which I found very interesting uh, but that wasn't my style of, of, of thing um, I was coming at it more from the the uh, I guess more from the Catholic side if you really want the um, ceremonial high ceremony um, hermetic Gnostic even Kabbalistic kind of of, of way of looking at things mm-hmm. but a Gnostic Luciferian way of approaching that kind of stuff and I was, didn't really see that. I didn't really see that out there. And uh, I was going to form my own esoteric uh, based on these ideas. Uh, like, let, let me see if I can. And uh, of reinventing the wheel. And it. Um, so uh, getting a little bit of a bandwidth issue here. So you um, you cut out for a second on me there. Yeah, I'm going to turn the video off here so we can uh, get a better audio. Okay, no problem. Okay. All right. So, um, so I thought, you know what, let me give another try just to see if there's anybody out there doing anything like this at all. Uh, that I can work with instead of having to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. And I managed to find the Ordo Luciferi, uh, founded by a guy going by the name Lucian Black. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and I read his founding document, the Luciferian Manifest, and I thought this is actually quite close to what what I was intending on doing. And so I just joined. I just joined that instead of founding my own. And uh, ended up becoming the head of it, <laughs> and um, and reworked some of the material and um, and and changed it around a little bit. But uh, and that still exists uh, more in a open source sort of way, where people can kind of look at the material and kind of work it on their own. Uh, but there is there is a community, but it's not like huge and, and active very active but uh it's more of a, a system that people can kind of explore on their own mm-hmm. and uh use it as like milestones on things that they're going to try and do to partly to establish a legacy and partly to work on themselves and do the inner work um and then i uh the experience that i had with that i founded the Luciferian Research Society, which is uh, an experiment in working with that same kind of current, but in a non-hierarchical way. Mm-hmm. So there are no—it's not an order. There's no degrees. There's no uh, head of the Luciferian Research Society. It's a kind of uh, everybody meets on the level and. Uh, it's basically there to allow occultists 
and left-hand pathers of all stripes to interact with one another mm-hmm. and collaborate on projects. That's the, the main intention of the Luciferian Research Society. And, um, and out of that <laughs> came uh, the idea to bring it more into the real world and not just an online community, uh, but to take that concept of getting people from all different stripes of the left-hand path together in the same room in a non-hierarchical environment and that encourages collaboration. And that's where the left-hand path conference came out of. That idea of taking the, the, the same founding ideas behind Luciferian Research Society and bringing it into the real world, creating a space in the real world like that. And that was uh, in 2012, I manifested, uh, hosted, produced, uh, the first international left-hand path conference. Now, is that, is that Flambeau Noir? That is what I call it now, yeah. Okay. So the first one was in 2012 in Toronto. And um, and then Lori Numaticos, um, who had been a, a longtime collaborator with me at that point, um, she decided she wanted to host one as well so she uh, hosted one in Indianapolis Indiana in 2014 mm-hmm. and I helped her with that I helped organize and I did a lot of promotional work and I was also a presenter and um, that was the second international left-hand path conference and um, after that oh, and that was where I met uh, Michael Ford for the first time I met him in person and uh, we hit it off big time. And I had just been introduced to the Greater Church of Lucifer mm-hmm. by the, by the guy who founded it. Um, in and he was in Texas <laughs> as well. Is that uh, Jacob? No. Yeah. Okay. Jacob McKelvey, uh, who went by the pseudonym Jacob No. Um, so he had founded this uh, local group. And um, wanted, and he had. It was inspired by a lecture that I'd put online, Lucifer, Bringer of Light, or Prince of Lies, or something like that. I think I called it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he found that lecture that I did, and he was like, "Oh, that's exactly what I'm, you know, yeah, uh, want to do or whatever." And then he bought some Michael Ford books, and took the 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 two concepts or whatever mm-hmm. uh, and blended it to create his local local group right that he and, called the greater church of lucifer yeah and then contacted me after it had been a little bit established and he thought that it could do something more than just be a local group and um, and I looked at that and I said well yeah that sounds cool it's something that I'd thought about for a while but never really had the uh, the time or forever you know the ability to kind of put the energy into doing that because of just having so many projects ongoing at all times, really. And uh, so this was a way to kind of do that thing that I'd wanted to do for a while. Um, and ha- there was somebody there that was passionate that was going to help push it forward. And uh, and I got Michael involved too. 
Mm-hmm. And um, that got really big <laughs> for a while there. And uh, then it turned out that Jacob was uh, embezzling funds. <laughs> so from, yeah, GCL. So we booted him. <laughs> right. So um, so so like I can like back up and say since I live in Houston, um, and there's this point. What is this like about? So we're talking about two or three years ago when um, there was like the 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 Greater Church of Lucifer had a physical church in Spring, Texas, which was yes. on, and that was on uh, the the evening news. We saw it on the local news. Hey, there's a church of Lucifer in Spring, Texas. We were like, what? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know about it. And, you know, it's like it, on, on one side, one side of me was like, that's, you know, that's that sounds cool. And then the other side of me was like, that's like really dangerous, man. I mean, you, no, seriously. It's like yeah. you read the stories. I mean, I've, 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 you know, been involved with the the LHP movement for a while, and you know, these are you know the stories of like, you know, Anton Lavey, who had a physical church location, which was his house in in San Francisco, yes. and all of the bullshit he had to deal with because of that people like oh well we know where you're at so we're going to drive by and vandalize your your you know you wicked satanists and and this is in liberal liberal san francisco and it's like <laughs> yeah. where they were doing that that greater church of lucifer was like the most conservative i mean it's it's not in houston that's like out in a suburb of you know a very like outside of town um i don't even know if it's a suburb i think it's like a different like little it's a different town but it's not a liberal place to open an alternative <laughs> well, spring spirituality Texas, center. Like, <laughs> some of the neighbors were like uh, uh, an older, an elderly woman who ran an, a yarn shop, mm -hmm. you know, and, and things like this, right? Mm -hmm. Antique. There's like several antique shops, and you know, it's kind of like this uh, quaint little uh, small town kind of feel with these little, yeah. Uh, shops and such <laughs> we we had a lot of problems actually uh as you would imagine <laughs> somebody took a like a a stone cherub off of a yard from one of the neighbor's yards and uh from one of the yards next to the church and uh stole it and threw it through the window of the church yeah for for example, you know, yeah. uh, somebody else um, climbed a tree and sawed off one of the big branches. There was a giant branch that he yeah. sawed off. This is a really big old tree that was like, you know, beloved tree, you know. Uh, and they sawed off a really big branch and it fell and landed on a a neighbor's uh, shop's roof and damaged their roof, and they were trying to to hit ours, but it it didn't fall the right way that they wanted it to, and it yeah. damaged some of the else's. And yeah, oh, there was like a bunch of things, and there was like protests in the streets. There was like, oh, it was kind of funny actually. Um, one of the days uh, that there was a big protest there. Um, there was like a, a radical Catholic group, something like Fatima or Lady of Fatima, some group 
that they wear these like which is it's kind of weird because they almost look like templars um but this garb that they wear i'm not exactly sure what they're all about but they're pretty radical uh, catholic group and uh, they were arguing with the a protestant christian group in there while they were protesting against the the church of lucifer <laughs> building um but um that was kind of funny that they were arguing amongst each other and uh but then the other thing was uh it started raining and mm-hmm. jacob ended up getting a bunch of these uh um disposable um uh what do you call them uh rain jacket things uh-huh uh, sword poncho or whatever ponchos, yeah jacket. yeah rain ponchos yeah yeah, gotcha. he got those ones, and uh, he uh, had like about like six of them, or he got about six of them. And he brought them out to give them to these protesters, and uh, um, said, "Here, you know, it's it's raining out here. You guys have the right to uh, to voice your protest, and we respect that. And here, you if you're uh, getting too wet, you can wear these things, right?" Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, so one of the guys yelled out, "Don't wear it." You'll die. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> and nobody, nobody uh, took the uh, rain ponchos <laughs> at That's all. Funny. Not a single person, because somebody yelled out, "Don't take it! You'll die!" <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. It's so fucked up. You know, it's it's it's, you know, it's messed up that like people, the community reacted like that. That. That fanatical right-hand path, you know, authoritarian people, like, reacted in that way. That is violent, committing vandalism because they think they're they're okay to commit vandalism since it's like a minority group. It's beyond a minority group. It's like an evil group, right? Um, them, yeah, they, you know, I've talked about this kind of thing with a lot of Christians, and they literally feel that, that... The same actions that they do are justified because they of who they are, mm-hmm. because they're Christians and they're they're doing God's work. But if anybody else did the same things that they're doing, it's not justified because they're right. evil. No, it is. It's 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 wrong and it's hypocritical. You know, we see like in the world we live in today, we see fanatical Islamic people just committing incredible atrocities and violence and stuff like that. And in the West, in the, in the, you know, predominantly Christianized West, people think that they're like above that and that we're more liberal and that we have separation of church and state. We have a secular society and stuff. And for the most part we do. However, when things like this happen that push things on that level, all of a sudden you see all of that shit falls away and and people become violent and angry and just really not cool and you know i'm not saying that they're those people are right in any way whatsoever but at the same time on the left-hand path i would say my conception of the left-hand path and where i'm coming from which is like you know largely influenced by you know uh you know temple of sad and 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 the old cos and 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 things like that that we kind of like figured out we kind of learned a long time ago this isn't the best idea to set up a physical location and that's not the main thing that we're supposed to do you know what i'm saying it's like the main 
um, sort of, uh, I guess, mandate or mission or whatever that we're working towards has to do with mankind, man's soul, and our communication with each other, you know? The significance, like you were talking about earlier, that um, finding the right people and connecting with the right people that, that you could exchange ideas with, that's really the main thing. And setting up a physical shop like that is like, is like, I mean, there's lots of problematic things about it, but there's also lots of dangerous things about it. Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately the landlord out of fear uh, re, uh said that she couldn't renew our lease and uh-huh. that we had to leave at the end of the lease because she was getting death threats yeah like yeah. literally people were harassing her all the time and she tried to put up with it she tried to ignore it but she was getting death threats and uh so ultimately we they used violent threats of violence to uh yeah let's see achieve their their ends of of um you know getting a a a different religion that they disagreed with out of their community yeah by threats of violence you know how christian is that (laughs) yeah no yeah so you know so much for like uh the prince of peace right um it's just it's just horrible it's inexcusable and i remember during that time it's a little while back but um i uh there was a point where I was talking to Jacob and I was like, was, I was very close to like going out there at one point and like, you know, hanging out and seeing what they had like going on. But, um, but then things got real heavy before that ever, you know, came, came into being. So, you know, since we're, since we're talking about this, about public and, 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 um, making a statement and getting on the news and all that sort of stuff. Uh, what do you think about? There's another Lucian out there, a guy named Lucian Graves. There's this organization called uh, the Satanic Temple. What do you mm-hmm. think? Have you been watching their stuff? What do you think about that? Uh... You know, they're going out to, you know, they're just setting up statues on political and political. Um, you know, state buildings, trying to get statues put into state buildings, saying, hey, we need to have, hey, if you're going to, like, you know, violate church and state, you mm-hmm. know, under your state as property, then you need to ha- recognize all the religions and have, you know, our our uh, sabbatic goat statue, which I love their statues, by the way. I think they're awesome, you know. Um, I want one in my yard, you know. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But But it's creating this, like, controversy. So... So what do you think about that? Do you think that that's like uh do you think that's valuable? Do you think that's good for the left-hand path? Do you think it, it it's it's helping things? I don't know. I I honestly don't know. I'm of two minds, you know. Mm-hmm. I see the, well the thing is that, that there are some good things that come with it and there's some bad things that come with it. And I'm not sure whether the good things over uh, outweigh the bad things. <laughs> mhm. You know, um, it's definitely stirring up uh, people, and uh, I I think that it's a polarizing force, mm-hmm. which isn't isn't usually a good thing. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, they are pointing out hypocrisy, right? That that is rampant. You yeah. Know? And and getting stuff done, you know, 
So there's that at the same time, you know. So I do feel that some of the stuff is valuable. I think that uh, I don't think that they've been as careful about selecting their actions as as I think that they should have been. I think that some of their actions actually um, have contradictory elements to them, mm-hmm. uh, where they they claim to to have this as a value, but then they do this action, which kind of to me feels a bit hypocritical. Uh, like what? Like that, what? What are you thinking of? Do you have an example that you're thinking of? Uh, well, there's a couple, but uh, I'll just mention one. Uh, the there was one point where they were doing uh putting a setting up a stand or something by like public transit i think it was and uh there was like uh they were basically reacting against jehovah's witnesses setting up stands in public spots like mm-hmm. near public transit and uh trying to convert you know, passers-by. Well, they set up a stand and were talking to passers-by and uh, essentially proselytizing. Um, Although they said, oh, no, we're not proselytizing. We're just making people aware of the information about uh, what we're about. Um, And, you know, it's, you know, it's splitting hairs. You know, I feel like what what are they trying to accomplish with that? Mm-hmm. You know, I I feel like they're they're putting themselves in in that position where they're apparently proselytizing, right? And um, and they're just gonna make people mad, right? Yeah. They're just going to make yeah. people mad, and they're not going to create. See, I don't think when when I see them After doing their stuff, I don't even think they have a concept. There's no concept of. I, I mean, you and I, we've been talking about like, um, you know, self initiation and deification and rational self interest, and you know, becoming a god and 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 courage and heroism and all this stuff. I don't think I I, I don't see where they're even into any of that. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's it's not even their goal, a, you know. Yeah, it's more of a political activism group that's against uh or that fights to enforce the separation of church and state. Right. And they're using uh the imagery of of and symbolism of Satan as a political tool. Yeah. So, I don't think so, that so, so, an esoteric order or anything like that. It's a right. political activism group, essentially. So, would you say that? Do you, would you consider them left hand path? Is it a path? Uh, is it a path? That's a good question. I know. Like, <laughs> what, what does it lead to? You know, I suppose it leads to a, co- a collective system that's more suited to uh freedom i suppose um personal freedom Mm -hmm. conscious uh but that's a collective state that their their end goal is a a change in the collective state yeah man you just hit the nail right on the head that's the thing it's not they're not like 
against collectivism or trying to escape from collectivism. They're just trying to change the color and the flavor of collectivism. Yeah. To incorpor- you know what I'm saying? To just incorporate mm-hmm. like their like sense of like collectivism within it. Because to me, you know, so we have like a government building that has, you know, a Ten Commandments like statue. And it's like, well, we want to have our like goat headed statue here, too. And you have to do that because, you know, you can't show favoritism because of, like, church and state. And it's like, well, you know, to me, what the real problem is, is that we have a state building, like, doing this. That's the real problem. If there wasn't, like, government-owned property showing favoritism to something, then there wouldn't be a problem. It's the same problem as, like, prayer in school, right? School prayer, you know, I don't know if you have that in Canada, but that's something that comes up in America, and they're like, well, well we, we and, took and, prayer and, out of our public schools, but uh, a while back. But now they've sort of brought it back in with these uh, mini Islamic chapels, essentially. <laughs> you see, that's the problem. You know, the if if the 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 problem is that there the government provides school and forces people to go to it. So that people are like, well, if I'm being – my children are forced to go to this institution, then I don't see them or you got to represent this or that. And so that's the whole problem. If there wasn't public, meaning government-enforced schools, government-enforced indoctrination centers, then none of that would be an issue. If there was just (laughs) private schools, then you know the Muslims could send their kids to a Muslim school and the Christians could send their kids to a Christian school. And, you know, you'd probably send your kids to a a secular school or maybe you'd go start a Luciferian school, you know, (laughs) if there's enough interest in that, you know. And to me, that's the problem where bickering over something that's like it's called public property, but really it's not right. They call it public property to say, oh, well, everyone owns it, you know, so we just have to have a conversation to decide what. But no, the reality is the government owns that. This authoritarian group owns that, and they get to decide if we're going to have a statue of a Bible or if we're going to have prayer in school. And so they're going to offend someone. And so now they're in this horrible position of, well, we own it, so we have to please everyone, but it's a diverse society, so what do we do, you know? Yeah, so it's interesting here in Canada, um, they took the, you know, the Lord's Prayer out of public school, and they took, you know, uh, Christian Christianity out of public school, and now they've brought in uh, Islamic prayer. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> and so people are obviously pissed off. <laughs> yeah. There's this one area actually um, uh, where it's just outside of Toronto, um, called Peel Region, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a lot of people that are just livid like they've made it their crusade to get the, the islamic prayer out of schools they're like they are you, you know you already took you know, why why are you putting prayer back into the public schools you know and they're freaking out and uh there was even one incident where there was a public meeting uh that had to be held about it and one of the, there was somebody there that was tearing up a quran in the public meeting and yelling and saying, I won't have this in my, you know, Mm -hmm. freaking out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's just crazy. Getting back to the whole, like, uh, 
the satanic temple stuff and uh-huh. how they have kind of stunts essentially um another one that i didn't like getting back to the school thing was after school satan now, oh yeah yeah they had an after school satanic group yeah yeah and that was in response to after school christian groups uh-huh. you know right which were completely voluntary and i don't see a problem really with that that if the kid wants to go um to some after school thing it's not like it's being it's not like it's mandatory or or even you know you don't get credit for it or it's, it has nothing to do with it it's after school right uh-huh so why you know begrudge a group from having an after school uh meetup thing for their kids uh in the first place but also like i think what they were trying to do is use their tactic of um saying me too and then they and then force and then when they say oh no we don't want you to have me too so we're gonna shut down everything that backfired and they said okay no you can have your after school satan uh things and now that (laughs) it didn't work right yeah and and you don't want and and their their trailer for it was this really creepy did you see the trailer for their after school Satan program? No, I didn't. Is it on YouTube? Yeah, I think so. It looked like a trailer for a, a horror movie. <laughs> like for real. And uh-huh. I saw people laughing about it and stuff. Well, the thing is, they're obviously they were trying to be provocative in order to get the whole thing shut down, but it backfired and they were said, "No, you can have your after school Satan program." Right. And now they're like, "Oh, well, we don't want that. To yeah. Bring kids into this thing that we made to seem really crazy, spooky, and creepy as heck. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to do that. Yeah. You know, we were trying to get the whole thing shut. They called their bluff, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured I'm, I'm 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 like trying to speak your lingo, you know. A, so. I do say a a lot, actually. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, you know. So okay, so I guess I, I guess we said everything that we need to say about the TST. Uh, maybe they're doing something good. I'm I'm not sure if they're doing anything good or not. Really, it's it's. Uh, it's, yeah, but it's, but it's not mind. like an initiatory path. That's the thing, and I don't think anyone who's even involved with that would be like uh, would would dispute that. They're like, no, no, it's not. We're uh, it's like largely a political, like kind of protest flag organization, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think part of their strategy uh, hinges on them claiming that what they're doing is is a religion. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's part of they have to say that when they describe what TST is. Mm-hmm. But uh, other than that, uh, yeah, I agree with you on that. I'm not sure if what it's what they're doing is good or not. I think some of it is. I think some of it misses the mark. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when we boil it down, it's not a path. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah. 
So what do you think is the role of, because we talked about this uh, in a number of ways this evening, what is the role of a school in left-hand path initiation? Is work with other people really necessary or could someone just totally do, do, do it on their own, so to speak? <laughs> uh, very good question. Very good question. Uh, and I've, you know, a lot of the, the work that I've done in my life with this stuff has been exploring that question. Um, I feel like, yes, you could do it on your own, uh, but working with others creates things or can if, if, if it's done right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the role of uh, initiatory school, I think, is mainly just getting people in the same room as one another or getting people to interact in some way to share their ideas with one another to challenge one another um and to really to just cross-pollinate one another and to challenge one another i think that's an important element uh because once you have your beliefs challenged uh you get a chance to see whether they hold up to that challenge or not <laughs> And if they don't, well, then obviously they're lacking in some, there's something lacking, whether it's your understanding of it is lacking or whether the, the, the teaching in itself is lacking. Um, you, and you get to find that out when you get challenged. Absolutely. And when you say cross-pollinate, I feel you really hit the nail on the head with that term. We cross-pollinate because I think there's like, there's an exchange that's like really significant and there's something about ideas certain types of ideas certain qualities of ideas have something more substantial to them than other ideas and through that exchange there's something significant that can be received for it and to me that's like why we have esoteric schools and that's why an esoteric school is different than a than a secular school or than a you know a tech a, a technical school where you're learning a skill you know that you're going to go uh, apply in life but an esoteric school people are exchanging something right there's some kind of exchange that everyone grows from right if you if you uh, uh, approach an esoteric school with the right sort of frame of mind the right sort of um, you know the right and in the right sort of context, then you can receive something that helps you grow on this path. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Um, like for example, uh, I'm not sure if this is the best example or not, but like uh, I went to school for electronics, mm -hmm. um, and they taught me the existing technology and how to use it to achieve the things that I set out to achieve. Um, like if I set out to create a, you know, a car alarm that sets off my pager, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> yeah. If you still had a pager, um, 
or sends a me- you know or sends a message to your your smartphone right when your car window gets broken you know yeah yeah i've learned you know how to use existing technology to to do those types of things or whatever right but it doesn't teach you how to uh come up with new ideas right it doesn't t- tell you how to innovate a new form of technology mm-hmm. you know um it's not trying to spark creativity it's just trying to uh convey comprehension of an existing concept or an yeah. existing you know technique and you know i think that uh there is an element of that in the esoteric schools where um part of it is that you're learning to be a more efficient human you know using existing technologies the, that we have uh and i don't mean when i say technologies i don't necessarily mean electric electricity right. you know machines i mean like uh techniques and um processes yeah you know no i get you there's there's a sense there's there's definitely a sense in which you talk about these things that you learn in through you know esoteric schools and systems and stuff like that that it's totally appropriate to talk about this as a technology because it's not like a a dogmatism it's not like oh here's a set of like beliefs of like you know how you're supposed to emotionally feel about things and you must always feel this way you know you must always you know love the father or whatever and be obedient um no it's a technology in other words there's no um really there's not a uh, moralism on it it's it's something that is just you know it's a technology so you need to take it and you need to utilize it and you need to be the being who is his moral and do something with it and and make something out of it yes so speaking of technology i heard that you're interested in bitcoin yeah what's yeah. that all about tell me what that's all about well it's a game changer really um and the 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 main the big game changer isn't just the digital currency it's the blockchain technology that it's that it's built off of uh this is the big game changer so the blockchain is essentially a ledger of all the transactions that have happened in in chunks mm-hmm. so you get a chunk of a ledger and that's processed and then they chain another chunk of a led of a ledger onto that and it, it creates a chain mm-hmm. so you're always having these new transactions happening and then once a certain amount of them happen that they put it into a block and it goes into this ledger that's immutable uh and the further back you go the more impossible it gets to to, to roll it back or change it um and the other thing the other aspect of it is that there's no centralized authority that is operating the the blockchain there's not there isn't a group of accountants sitting there writing the blockchain and putting it in you, you know? mean like a like a central bank right so do so you have a no, do you have a central bank in canada kind of it's not quite as bad as your federal reserve bank in the states which is, of course isn't this is pretty bad federal. 
<laughs> it is a federal uh, organization. It doesn't hold a reserve, and it's not a bank. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, it's, uh, we have the, the Bank of Canada, which is actually, I, from my understanding, is actually part of the Canadian government, technically. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, but it does have some of the same drawbacks or some of the same uh, messed up stuff that the Federal Reserve has. It's not quite as bad, but there are still some major issues. Like, the main major issues are all there still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we, I guess... They make loans. They loan. They make loans to the government, and 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 set interest rates on those loans, which uh, affects all the other interest rates in the country and stuff like that. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think if we were to try and change the situation to re- rectify the situation, it would be a little easier for us because of the way that it's set up. Uh, for you guys, I believe that the Federal Reserve is just not even part of the government right well no so this is something that that goes back and forth um as far as like how people uh conceive of it that it's like it's it's like separate from the government as far as the people who own it but it was brought into being by a uh act of congress called the federal reserve act in 1914 Mm. so it is it's supported by the government um, it's and and I mean ultimately I think you have to call it a form of cronyism. It's like a private bank that is like, you know, legitimized by the government because it uh, is. I mean, the government yeah. like enforces it, right? So um, and, and and the history of this. So this started in like 1914, and then um, and you know right in time for World War One. I. I mean, that's the thing about the central bank in America is it's absolutely connected with war. Right. So it's like the the decade of war, like 1914, it it comes up in time for World War One. And then, you know, it's I mean, the history of America is a history of like almost total war, you know, ever since then. (laughs) Right. And it's like people don't understand that wars feed the Fed and the Fed feeds the wars. That's the thing is people don't understand, don't understand that. But if you step back and look at it, it's really clear that that's what it does. They brought this into being and they gave it to, you know, and, and, and it's like administered by these bankers who say that it's like a private thing, but it's legitimized by the government. And, you know, FDR during World War II, like went through this period of like, you know, eliminating the gold standard um, and through, you know, a series of like, you know, uh, different laws and, and, and executive orders. Um, and then it, it, you know, it it slowly got picked away until, um, I think with, uh, Nixon in the seventies, the final shreds of the gold standard were eliminated. And so that's like, that's the last shred of like an individual having basically money on their own. Right. It's like, so now from, from there on out since the seventies, all money is like paper money where the government decides what it is. And the next step, the next step that, that we look forward to is if they digitize it. Right. And so there's a lot of people like, oh, this is going to be so great. We don't have paper money anymore. (laughs) But I'm like, no, because that means it's like they can do any. Even if I have paper money right now, even if it's like, you know, the the Fed is like devaluing it, you know, through inflation, you know, uh, constantly per second, you know, um, still it's like something I can take away. It's off the map. Right. I could do whatever I want with it. I can take this. I can go down to a a taco stand and buy a taco, you know, um, or you go down a 
dark alley and buy right. something illegal. Right. No, I could get I could go like get some, you know, prostitution with this. I could, you know, buy a uh, buy a bag of weed. I could do whatever I want. I could exchange it with you. I could give it to my friend and say, "Hey, will you give me a drive uh, a ride downtown? I'll pay you 5 bucks. Here you go." You know? Um, but once everything is like fully digitized, then there's no transaction that can take place without the government being aware of it. And what that means is that they can tax it then, you know? Um, so to me, it's all very problematic, but, um, now isn't like 90% of, of, uh, currency digital anyways, <laughs> right? No, a huge amount of it is anyhow. Yeah. Just huge... numbers in a, in a machine in a computer right it is but now the difference with but Bitcoin, but i can though. go i can go and i can get it out i can get the paper out right like yeah, you used true. to be able to do that with gold right i mean that was the original reason that we had paper <laughs> money right uh, paper money was just a representation yeah. of gold that i had and i could go turn that into the bank and they give me my gold back but anyhow so so how does how, 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 how gold is sitting there you and that you can trade your paper in and get the gold you can go in and and get this idea and trade it in for paper <laughs> right i can trade in digi digital stuff for like paper yeah it is so yeah, it is so ideas, pointless trade it in for paper ideas <laughs> it's so pointless so tell me how is how is bitcoin going to save us from all this how can bitcoin like save us well, it's funny that you use that terminology because uh, it does seem that there is a religion of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Satoshi, no, na, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, this the pseudonym of the unknown creator of Bitcoin, is the is the Messiah. <laughs> um, but some people believe that Bitcoin is the the mark of the beast. Mm -hmm. Um. Other people believe it's the antidote to the mark of the beast. Mm -hmm. Anyways, so uh, the way that Bitcoin is going to save us all <laughs> from this fiat currency nightmare um, where money is debt and, right. uh, and, it is, and it's enforced through violence um, is that you don't have a trust. You don't require a trusted third party is the main thing here. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, once Bitcoin was set into motion, once it was activated, uh, then it is decentralized. There's no – it's – you require a, a consensus of users to make any kind of change to Bitcoin. Um, so basically everybody has to agree that they want it to change in order for it to change. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and the other thing too is that it cannot be inflated by some authority. Um, so uh, it's built off of the blockchain, which is almost like a decentralized computer in a sense. And so blockchain, uh -huh. so I'm trying to understand this stuff and I've got like a bit, um, I've got like the app where I got it and I got like a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, um, a while back. And I saw, I've, I've watched it like go up and go down radically like in value and stuff. So what is it? And so when I got it, 
when I invested in it, you know, I paid, I, I put in like a hundred dollars or whatever. And then it goes through this process of like, I guess, mining it. Is that, am I thinking about that right? It, it, it mines it. Is that what the whole blockchain technology refers to? Uh, so there's a, a system in place that, that determines how new Bitcoin gets created. And Bitcoin is essentially a token, just like a like a dollar bill is a token that mm -hmm. we agree is valuable, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not actually valuable, right? Uh, it's a token. Mm -hmm. uh, but, of course, the dollar is backed by the government's authoritarian and violence. Right, by the gun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um uh, Bitcoin is backed by strong cryptography, essentially, and it has scarcity um, because it cannot be artificially inflated. There are very specific rules built into the system that can't be changed unless everybody agrees, I suppose, but it's a pretty fundamental aspect of Bitcoin. I don't think any, you're going to get a consensus to agree on that, to change that. But that basically only 21 million Bitcoin will ever be created. And uh, so there's a process of people who are donating their computing power to the network to allow the network to run, um, get rewarded with when new Bitcoin is created. Some of those people that are contributing their, their computer power uh sometimes they'll randomly get some of that new coin and that's kind of their their uh incentive to to uh run the network on their computers wow um but basically everybody who's got a full node or even a wallet is participating because you have um it's almost holographic in that the the full ledger of every single transaction that's ever happened is distributed mm -hmm. ev on every node. And so if every single node except for one got destroyed, you could bring it back and mm -hmm. nobody has lost their value if, if they've managed to maintain their private keys and stuff. Right. <laughs> Well, can you so, go? Can you go totally like? Uh, do you think you'll be a, a, eventually be able to just totally live off the grid with with Bitcoin? Yeah, well, I think you you could already um, to some extent where um, you have these debit cards and you load them with Bitcoin, and you can just go down to your local. Uh, Taco Bell, <laughs> you know, as you were saying, you could you could spend money to uh, buy a taco uh, with the dollar. You could buy it with Bitcoin with a with a debit card, and it will do the tra the conversion. And uh, to the shop owner, it's transparent. They're like, okay, you're using a debit card. Yeah, I accept debit. You pay with your debit, they get their money, and they just get uh, dollars out of it. Right, they just get local currency. Wow. And um, so that already exists. 
So things are getting a lot more easy to to use this for that kind of thing. Well, what about it? It, it seems like Bitcoin is like really volatile. Does that affect your um, ability to just spend it whenever you need to? Yeah, that is a that is an issue um, because there's so much speculation in the in the market. You know, mm-hmm. as it's a it's almost like you could consider it a foreign currency, although it's not tied to a country. It's like the internet of the or sorry, it's like the money of the internet or something you could call it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a currency, and so when you trade one currency for another, that's you know people call it forex trading. Mm-hmm. It's it's a little different than stock market trading. So it's like uh, trading forex. Yeah, but... yeah, C- currency currency trading. Right, and so uh, the volatility is is good in one sense in that people can take advantage of that because you know sometimes you you'll get like a fluctuation of even i've even seen like 10 percent in a single day Mm -hmm. so if you could even capture even half of that uh where essentially if it's getting close to the the peak uh of that day um and you sell your bitcoin and then when it dips down closer to one of the valleys on that day and you buy back mm-hmm. and now you have 5%, 5% more Bitcoin than you did earlier in the day, um, that's a huge you know, plus for mm-hmm. somebody who, who can do that. You right. know, like essentially day trading, Forex day trading right. with Bitcoin. You know, it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting. Five percent in a single day, right? Right. Can you imagine doing that every day. No, compound it. It is. It is. You're. You're right. And the 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 fluctuation like that. I mean, some people look at that and they're like, "That's like so like problematic and scary." But the problem is just like regular currency that we have, especially in America. I don't know if it's as bad in Canada, but in America. I mean, there's periods where the dollar like is, is like deflating so bad, and the thing is, everyone knows it, right? People become aware of it because of price, how how prices like change, where prices will like radically change with things, and when when the population becomes aware of it, people start spending like crazy to try and get rid of their money because you you realize it's like devaluing, <laughs> and so people get it, it. It's almost like a intuitive, you know, subconscious sort of reaction that people will start spending. Because it's like, well, you got to spend this money out because it's it's not going to be worth anything next week. Right. So, well, so they go through Weimar crazy. Germany. Like, right. right. Exactly. Like Weimar Germany. That's the thing that's like so stupid about central banking and everything is that, well, you know, every, the world just like all saw that happen with like Weimar Germany and it led to like, you know, fascism and, and just like death and total war and everything. And it's like, you know what? People just don't learn their lesson. You know, people <laughs> just don't learn their lesson with things. I hope like Bitcoin is a sign of something else. Have you? That's the other thing Uh is that it, you know, like a fiat currency eventually gets inflated to the point of of worthlessness, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, Well, that's impossible to happen within Bitcoin because only 21 million will ever exist. Right. It's It's more like a digital gold. Because that's why it's modeled after that. That's why they call it mining, you know, because only right. a certain amount is in the ground, you know. There's only a certain amount of Bitcoin ever that could ever be created, 21 million. That's really uh, amazing. And I did not know that about Bitcoin. Um, and because that's the thing about gold, you know, the case for gold is based on the fact that 
Well, there's not a limited. Well, there is. We know there's a limited amount that's in the earth, right? And 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 mm-hmm. it's limited by time and our ability to pull it out. So there's limitations on it. That's what makes it valuable. Yeah. And dollar bills, there is no limitation on it. The Fed can right. just print out more and more and more Trillions. and more. Yes. Yeah. And there's no way, there's no end. There's no possible end in sight, you know, until everything collapses like it did in Weimar, Germany, you know. Right. And people will be scrambling for gold or digital gold, a.k.a. Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, because it's a it's a better store of value than fiat currency, which can be inflated by some third party that you have to just trust, right? Yeah. Bitcoin doesn't have that third party uh, that you have to trust. Right. Well, the, it, the system just runs and, and nobody can go in there and just be like, Oh, you know what? Nope. You know, change that, deny this one. You know, you don't even have to know who it can, who the other person on the other end of the transaction is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they can't stop it from going across borders. You know, there's no such thing as a border for Bitcoin. Right. Um, you know, they, they can't seize it from you. Uh, so like in the States, right. Where, you know, in your country, uh, how long ago was it? Um, was it maybe a hundred years ago or so they seized, people private citizens gold right right no yeah like fdr no that's in the 30s you know it's very recent not even 100 years ago not even 100 years ago 30s or or 40s or years yeah very recently no i can't i it, it it blows my mind that there's people in this country who think the government is like cool and they can trust the government it just so blows my mind that you know, no, the government made people turn in their gold at gunpoint. Right. You know. <laughs> so the thing is, you can say, "I don't have any Bitcoin." You know, prove right. it, whatever. Right. Right. And uh, there's no way that you could be forced to give it up. Like the thing is, if you have it secured properly, uh, you know, you could even have it stored in your brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, the data that's required for you to access or to recover your Bitcoin, you could have it in what they call cold storage in your brain. <laughs> um, if you have a good enough memory uh, or use mnemonics or, or whatever, right, to mm-hmm. to uh, install this memory in your own mind, um, if you can do that, you can store Bitcoin in your brain in cold storage and it can't be hacked. You know, it it can't be, it can't be seized. Uh, nobody can take it from you. Right. And then unless they, you know, destroy you. Right. Right. In which Uh, case you don't need it anymore. (laughs) Right. They can't, they still don't get your Bitcoin. Right. (laughs) They destroyed you. That's the only thing they can do. Um, so you really can take it with you then. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and then in that case, nobody would ever have that Bitcoin ever. It would just be there. And there is Bitcoin that has been lost where it, it can never be accessed now at this point ever wow. because people have lost the keys to access it. Wow. <laughs> um, but that just makes it more scarce. The right. only thing about Bitcoin uh, is 
over time, less and less gets mined in, in a model, you know, approaching gold as well because it requires more and more uh, raw material every year to um, work through in order to get the same amount of gold at the end, you know. Um, so it gets harder and harder and you get less and less gold until eventually all the gold has come up out of the earth, right? Same with Bitcoin. Eventually, all 21 million will have been mined. Mm -hmm. um, and the only... At that point, people will uh, still be donating their computers to the network because when they... Uh, they'll get transaction fees. Mm -hmm. There are trans. There are very small transaction fees, although they've been getting bigger lately because of... Right certain issues with bitcoin well and that happens with gold too there's always a cost there's a cost for like keeping it right like if i keep it on right. on site i keep it on my site then i gotta pay for safes or security or something or else i have to pay for someone a, a, a company to hold my gold somewhere right and so uh that's i think that's the the, the thing is that there's no centralized authority that can control bitcoin right um, there's no bank. There's no, um, like for example, if, if I wanted to, uh, donate money to WikiLeaks, I can't do that through my bank. They won't let me transfer money from my bank to WikiLeaks because they just don't give me permission. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, if I wanted to use PayPal to transfer money to WikiLeaks, they won't let you do that either because they don't. Right, they, they can freeze assets like the 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 state's money. They can freeze the assets anywhere they want. You know. Yeah. That's the problem. It's with not it. really yours. Right. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not yours. You don't actually own property. You know. Right. <laughs> so, um, with Bitcoin. There is no centralized authority. There's a distributed compu blockchain computer essentially running on a distributed network of people that are getting paid to donate their computers to this network. Um, you cannot be forced to give your money up, uh, you know, unless you're coerced or something, right? Like. Mm -hmm. If they know you have it, and maybe you could be tortured or something. But you know, that aside, uh, you you could choose if you know if you're strong enough to withstand the torture or whatever. You know, they can't force you to give it up. Right. You could even have it stored in your brain, as I was saying, and then put the keys back into some other computer and and, a, and open up a wallet and then use it. Right. Um, so what about um, what about um, have you heard of uh, BitGold or uh, Gold Money this company I think there was a thing called Bit, uh, BitGold or something like that there was a uh, thing called BitGold and then they became Gold Money and then they got uh, they, they um, merged with um with uh, Peter Peter Schiff, so I don't Peter Schiff. I don't know if you know who who that is. Um, yeah. he's a, 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 a economist guy who wrote some books in America. 
Um, but they, uh, but gold money is basically um, a, a, a collective of several different like uh, international gold reserves that basically allows you to invest in to buy gold and they hold it for you at like uh, any amount rather than talking about because usually if you're going to buy gold you got to talk about I'm going to buy an ounce or whatever and where am I going to put it but you just invest so much in it just any amount at all and then they give you a debit card you get a debit card for it and so you can basically use your gold as money anywhere and it's like made like gold investment like totally portable you know so it's like and and you can also like you know at any time you can you know say well i want my gold and they'll like send it to you so it's like it's like banks like used to be right so it's a way it's a way for people since since the gold standard was removed from uh you know removed from the economy forcibly you know way back when it's a way to reinstate a gold standard now just privately just within your own, you know, your own savings and your own portfolio, I can have like this much gold in it just by this is what I'm going to put my money into, you know. So you have that there as like a part of your, you know, um, portfolio or whatever. And it's like it, it's it's similar to um, it's similar to and, and you can tell when they called it bit gold, they were trying to they were like following this model of like Bitcoin. And that's another thing. I think Bitcoin inspired that. Right. Um that they like create this system for it and um but it's since it's gold it's like it doesn't have the volatility and that's the thing with bitcoin it has this incredible like volatility right now it's like and i know some people like uh so 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 how do you how do you deal with uh with bitcoin do you do you use it and do you like spend it or do you just like acquire it and and, and save it what 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 is your strategy uh, yeah, well, before I get to that, I just want to say about the uh, the thing you mentioned, the bit gold. Yeah, I like some of the ideas about that, and I like where they're going with with it in some ways. Where I like that they have, you know, basically the denominations are in ounces of uh, you or know, grams. You can get down to or grams, grams or point gram right. or whatever. Yeah, and then whatever that is currently valued at, you know, goes up and down. I guess, uh, and then you spend that value with the card is cool because it has high liquidity right yes exactly that's the whole thing liquidity but the but the problem is that you're trusting a third party you're trusting those people who say they have the gold physically stored um if that was kind of where the whole fractional reserve system thing came about in the first place is when when people were trusting people to hold gold for them and having uh, right so there's a run on the bank but it's not (laughs) well the thing with the gold and i don't know this i haven't been i haven't been to any of their you know uh reserve offices but it's not fractional reserve it's like they have all of it there they're only selling gold that's there right and again, uh, no, you're right. It's a third party. I don't, I don't really know what them. they're doing, but yeah, right. You do. You you have to trust them. You have them. to trust that they're at, that they're. They say that they have, for every, you know, ounce of gold that you say that you own, they have physically an ounce of gold there sitting, in your account or whatever, in the vault assigned to you. 
but we don't know that for sure. You have to trust this third party. Well, well they're they're trustable because all of the parties to. that are involved in it are like Brinks. They're all these old school like companies that have been around, you know, for like hundreds of years, and they have, and in in they have like um um. Uh, found it's it's not a foundry you know where wherever you store gold there's a term for it i can't remember it right now but they have them in different parts of the world like there's one in new york there's one in there's one in uh toronto there's one in singapore there's one in uh you know in in switzerland they're like in, there's one in england you know there's like they're all over the, the the world and so it's like you determine how much when you when you purchase gold from them which one you're gonna like buy from so you uh so that's where your gold is like supposedly at so you can go hey you know what i don't trust china right now the government like come might come in and seize everything i'm gonna move all of my stuff over to uh you know switzerland that seems like you know switzerland seems pretty cool you know um so so there is that but but you're right still it is like a third party thing and i don't really know what they're doing you know Right. So you're still trusting a third party with with Bitcoin. You don't have to trust a third party now. But I am, though, man, because it's like a computer thing. It's like there's other like there's all this computer stuff going on, you know, behind my computer on the Internet that I, I can't see and I don't actually know anything about. You know what I mean? But it's open source so you can read the code if you want if you can understand it <laughs> yeah okay give me the code i'll read it <laughs> <laughs> now the thing is third parties have sprung up in the crypto space or uh in the bitcoin arena mm -hmm. um where you have exchanges so a currency exchange that will allow you to exchange your uh fiat currency in whatever denomination that you have it in, say American, for Bitcoin currency. And so you have an exchange. You have to, that's a trusted third party that's been introduced into the Bitcoin system. Now, if you had just direct, it, like you could actually meet up with somebody in real, in real life and give them cash and they can directly transfer Bitcoin to you right on the spot mm -hmm. and that doesn't require a trusted third party you can see the money go into your wallet and you can you're physically handing over the cash right but with an exchange you will put your money into an account and then you'll exchange it for uh bitcoin and then if you want to pull that bitcoin out into your bitcoin wallet then that that is all transactions that are happening that they're controlling. And while you're, the Bitcoin is sitting in the exchange, you know, you, you're not controlling it. You're, you're not in control of your private keys mm -hmm. uh, in terms of that's how you control your, your money. It's like uh, it's sitting in a bank, in a sense, or an online wallet. Uh, there are companies that have online wallets. They're very convenient, but you're not controlling your private key. They are. Right. And they've been hacked, you know, and things like that. Uh, and people have lost their money through that. Um, so really, uh, some of these old ideas have worked their way in, and that's where the vulnerabilities are is when 
you have these trusted third parties. Right. Now, in terms of Bitcoin, um, it's more right now. It's more of a an investment vehicle uh-huh. uh, um, than a practical uh, thing. You know, it can right. be used as a practical currency, but as you were saying, the volatility uh, reduces the functionality of that because right. you know if if it's uh, let's say if it's dipped down a bit, you know, like. Um, Instead of three thousand dollars, it dipped down to two thousand nine hundred per Bitcoin. You might not be as willing to spend it because you're like, oh well, I'm not going to get the my my value out of it. Right? right. Don't spend it today. Let's like wait a couple of days and uh, see if it goes up, and then I'll spend it. My money will be more powerful. Right. <laughs> so you get these kinds of issues where the volatility, you know, prevents it from being used, just like. Um, a currency. Um, well, in, in, are... in one sense, though, that could be good, though, and maybe that goes back to the original, the original idea of money is that you you shouldn't just be spending it all the time, you know, spending it like a like a sailor all the time, like we do with <laughs> like fiat currency, right? Get rid of it because it's like losing its value, you know. Every no, second, right. every second, it goes, it only goes down, right? Get rid of it, right? But like maybe like if we had real currency that had actual value, then we'd be a little bit more careful about how much we spend, you know? Well, now one of the things that, that people have been talking about is that Bitcoin is better as a store of value than a medium of exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be used for either, but same with gold. Mm-hmm. Gold is can be used as a medium of exchange, but it's better suited as a store of value mm-hmm. and that that purpose of money there's there's different purposes of money right right uh, so that function of of money um is better the gold is better suited as a medium of or yeah uh a store of value well and you I know you know over time with gold you know it's going to increase value right like not as it it, 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 it it doesn't move as radically as like say, you know, stocks and whatnot in the market, but it over time it increases with value. So that's why it's a good store of value, because it's gonna get better, you know. You you get rewarded for storing it and hanging on to it. Well because of its scarcity, right? Is yes. that, that's the main thing uh-huh. is that uh over time it becomes more and more scarce. Um, most of the gold that comes up out of the ground every year gets used. Or no, that's silver. Uh, most of the silver that comes up out of the ground every year gets used. Yeah, silver. Yeah, silver gets used for all sorts of things. It's like a electronic conductor and stuff like that. But there is a finite amount of of gold. Is is the point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, there are other alternate cryptocurrencies that were. Uh, modeled after Bitcoin that uh, are better suited as a medium of exchange where you can do little transactions quickly and for very low cost. Um, Litecoin okay. was is an early one that was designed kind of for that purpose. And it's faster. It uses less electricity to run the network. Um, 
but there's a there's uh more of it there's uh i think there's four times as much uh that will ever be created um and so it was actually kind of supposed to be like silver mm -hmm. to bitcoin's gold <laughs> oh okay uh some more suited to still you know has some a lot of the same qualities but but more suited to smaller transactions uh more frequent quicker transactions like for mm -hmm. example you, if you were to bitcoin's not very well suited for like say going to the local cafe and getting a coffee and a donut mm -hmm. um because the the um the amount of time it takes for the transaction to go through properly with the amount of confirmations um so you know for sure that that it's going to go in your wallet and stay in your wallet um and transaction fees and things like that uh it's not as well suited for that purpose um but litecoin is better for that in terms of you could use it if you wanted to use it for like say buying a coffee it's a lot more suitable for that purpose so what um, is that is that light litecoin yeah l-i-t-e l-i-t-e okay and that's been around for a while now you have another thing called ethereum <laughs> and that's a blockchain system uh for smart contracts and it has a a native token which is called ether Mm -hmm. And that ether is kind of like the Bitcoin or Litecoin or whatever, um, but it's a much larger system. Uh, it's for smart contracts. And ether can be used as the native token to transfer value to um, fulfill those contracts. <laughs> it's kind of complicated, but you basically... Uh, remove some of the trusted third-party issues in contract negotiations um, if you can program in certain conditions, almost like an if-when kind of uh, program where if party, the first party fulfills this obligation, then the second party fulfills their ob uh, obligation in the contract kind of thing. Wow. And so it's a smart contract platform built on the blockchain. Wow. And it has its own native token called Ether. Now, Bitcoin is just the native token. Uh, it doesn't have that smart contract element. So this whole blockchain thing can be used for so much more than just digital currency. It's a, it's a major game changer. It's on, you know, a lot of people are, are saying that it's as significant as the internet wow that it has that big of an impact and it it's it's like a it's like an industry disruptor as well right uh, because it's kind of like taking it's like what napster and torrents did to the music and and entertainment industry yeah. in general uh this is kind of doing to the financial industry and yeah they're trying to take it in other ways too in terms of like in insurance uh there are ways of of creating smart contracts on the blockchain uh, that don't require um a trusted third party or you don't require some you know dude who checks off approved or not you know <laughs> if certain conditions are met 
then it, it goes through, right? And so uh, you don't require a trusted third party. That's the key to this blockchain thing is that it's decentralized and it acts without um, authority. It's not permission-based. Right. It's condition-based. No, it's condition-based and it's like will-based. I mean, you just like hit the money. You, you, you just hit the nail on the head with all of that stuff, you know? that it's it's like it's like freedom based it's individuality based it's like there's no central authority i mean this is like absolutely i mean disruptive technology when you said that i mean that is the nature of lucifer right that's the whole principle of it right yeah to disrupt the f the forbidden flame absolutely right? that Prometheus gave to humanity and said, here. <laughs> right. And, 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 you know, I mean, to me, it's, it's great to talk about those things on a individual, personal, spiritual level, but really, ultimately, we need to be talking about those things on a, you know, an economic, sociopolitical, macro, you know, macroeconomical kind of level, I think. Yeah, and I think that there's so much potential that uh, we're not exploring in the occult realm. Mm -hmm. uh, we're so focused on, we're, we've fetishized ceremonial magic, for example. Mm -hmm. Like, occultism, like, it, to be an occultist, a lot of people think in their mind that that means, oh, I'm a person who does a lot of ceremonies. You know? Yeah. And, uh, I think that there's so much more that we could be doing with this stuff. Yeah. I agree. I agree. You know, it's like, you know, people doing ceremonies or whatever at home, that's fine. You know, if it's like helping you get your mind together and, and get your perspective together, then, you know, good for you. That's awesome. Wonderful. But I think there's a greater promise of potential from this idea of the black flame, this idea of the the the, the prince of darkness, this idea of, the, of, of Lucifer, the archetype of Lucifer, and the pattern of Lucifer, the pattern of the divine rebel, the divine individual, you know, and rational self-interest, there's a much greater promise. And I think actually mankind was moving in that direction, like maybe, I don't know, two, three hundred years ago, we're starting to move in that direction, you know, like really... Um, really intensely and then something happened like I don't know a hundred years ago or so we kind of got pulled up in this authoritarian thing you know um, and so we're dealing with that right now and the thing that's disrupting it is technology it's like technology first of all the internet like you said you made a great like a uh, connection with like you know how uh, these cryptocurrencies it's kind of like the internet again you know this thing happens with technology it just explodes. It disrupts. And it connects people. It connects people, and people start acting independently and doing things on their own. <laughs> and then the yeah. government, government and central authority, catches up to it. You know, it's like all this shit happened. All this like exchange is going on on the internet. People are, like buying stuff and like Amazon and you know, Zappos and PayPal. And all this stuff is going on is amazing. And then oh, the government's starting to catch up now. You know, like. You know, 10, 15 years later, they're like, oh, okay, so we're going to start taxing it now, you know? It's like, th that's the thing, the, 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 the one thing that we have is that 
man's ability that that spark of like innovation that we have you know what i you know think of as the black flame it's so powerful and it moves so fast that these these central authority organizations they just can't move fast enough to keep up with it you know it's like even like hardcore you know communism and stuff that like occurred you know in the soviet union and whatnot it's like it like sought to like you know keep people in this position and keep everyone together but what happens is like people on their own just move so quickly beyond it with uh innovation you know that eventually they had to say you know we just can't keep up with everyone let it go and then we have extreme <laughs> examples now like north korea where they're they've got everyone just like you know nailed down right there and everyone's watching that going jesus what's going to happen there but yeah, well, the thing is, you you have this uh, this attempt to control, uh, to to grasp, you know, onto the the, the fleeting power, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that the authorities once held, and uh, it you see that in this story of, you know, the Lightbringer archetype, you know, what which one of the best examples of is Prometheus. Mm -hmm. You have Zeus uh, trying to punish. Uh, Prometheus, he can't take the the, the flame back though. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's once it's out, it's out. You know, uh, what's that, that line? Um, yeah, Pandora uh, doesn't go back in the box. He only comes out. Right. No, it's like the genie. <laughs> it's like when you let the genie out of the bottle. You know. I know that's wrong. That's from uh, Pineapple Express. <laughs> <laughs> Pandora doesn't go back in the box. He only comes out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but yeah, like once Pandora's box is open and all the stuff comes out, that stuff doesn't go back in the box, right? Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's an attempt, you know. Uh, Zeus att attempts to, uh, you know, exert some sort of authority by binding prometheus to the rock right right uh but eventually prometheus gets unbound yeah and keep him there forever um and the 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 cat is out of the bag anyways um and but there's this this struggle right like to try and to make an example of somebody who's doing that so that it doesn't happen again hopefully you know they maintained it's hopefully the, the the little bit of power they still have um <laughs> you see this pattern over and over again and i think that's one of the most powerful things about luciferianism in, in to me and why it inspires me is that it's applicable to so much of, of my life and it's not just about being an occultist mm -hmm. I don't think that you have to be an occultist to be a Luciferian you know I feel that it is a, a huge uh, benefit to me to to learn or to understand occultism and, and the occult techniques I find the technology of occultism is a useful tool uh, but that's not what Luciferianism is. Right. It's it's a way of being, and right. it's a way of of creating and and uh, doing and beco becoming really right. Yeah. 
and it's it's like uh, establishing your legacy. It's it's writing your legend through your actions in the world, and and all of that. Yeah, it's it's taking your life and the things that you do with your life to an, a level of art. Absolutely, man. That's like awesome. So so speaking of uh, taking things to the level of art, let's talk about pleasure the priestess and the kind of artistic things mm-hmm. you're doing in the musical realm yeah um so pleasure the priestess is a musical project that i've been um a part of for a long time now uh, like 12 years i think now it is um and you know we've had our you know ebbs and flows in terms of activity but we've we've always been moving forward in some sense or another uh we it's a a musical project that is i would say you could call it electro-industrial maybe Mm -hmm. um that kind of gives you an idea of what kind of music it is and it's occult themed as you can imagine not all of the songs not every one but there is that general occult uh, occultism kind of informing it and we play with some of those themes uh, we like to deal with uh, tarot themes a lot as well and actually the name of the band Pleasure the Priestess was revealed to us in the cards and uh, and I told you about this privately before but uh, I'll say it for the listeners uh, yeah they need to know <laughs> yes yeah, so uh, when Matt and I decided to to put together a band again. We had had one in high school. <laughs> um, we were like, okay, well, what are we going to call it? Let's give it a new name. We're not going to call it Plastic Vein, like our old uh, high school band. Let's give it a, a new name. It's a new project, right? And so we uh, actually, I think it was Matt uh, picked up the uh, Thoth deck, the Alistair Crowley's Tarot. And uh, started just flipping through it and was, you know, laying the cards down. And, and, he, uh, and he laid down a card, and it was Pleasure, uh, which I believe is um, the Seven of Cups, I think. And then the Priestess. And he, <laughs> and he said it aloud. He said, Pleasure, the Priestess. <laughs> and then we both looked at each other and were like, well, that's it, obviously. Uh-huh. That's awesome. <laughs> obviously that's it and we didn't even discuss what each of us thought it meant at that point uh-huh. you know late like a couple of years later before we even sat down discussed with each other what our own individual interpretations of that were but um it, we didn't need to we just knew that that was it <laughs> right man have you ever seen the movie uh a la carta no, I don't think so. It's this wild. It's so weird. I bring it up because I was actually watching it earlier today with my wife before we uh, uh, got into the, all of this. And it's like, it's a 70s movie with all kinds of like bizarre uh, satanic type things and witchcraft themes in it and blood and gore and nudity and just all this like, real gonzo stuff. And it's like, you know, 
the whole concept of pleasure of the priestess just really fits right in with it right now. So I think it's really, <laughs> it's really appropriate that for me, after like seeing all these images, like, I don't know, this is about three, four hours ago when I was like watching all this and it's like, everything's coming back around to it, it seems, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's cool. I'll have to check that out. All right, well, my friends and fellow Damons, now we're going to check out Pleasure of the Priestess. And I hope you enjoy the mission.
Wow. That was some seriously funky stuff. Very smooth and rocking. I really dug it. I don't know what it is. You get down to Generation X. All the great left-hand path magicians are also great left-hand path musicians. I don't know what that is. Maybe there's a, a thing with that. But anyhow... Um, we definitely enjoyed talking with Jeremy Crow. We didn't even get into talking about Flambeau Noir, which is the Left Hand Path Conference that took place earlier this year in Toronto, Canada. And Jeremy is a organizer of that, and he is also in the planning stages for the next Flambeau Noir, which is uh, tentatively set to take place in Portland, Oregon, on the last weekend of April. 2018 so um, look for more information on that and we look forward to future works from Mr. Crow in the world out there so in the next few weeks we'll be having Toby Chapel on the show the Grand Master of the Order of the Trapezoid of the Temple of Set and the creative genius behind the musical projects Eyes of Lygia and misdreamt. We also hope to soon have on Dr. Aaron Cheek, PhD religious studies from the University of Queensland from the land down under. He's also a scholar of comparative religion, philosophy, and esotericism. He is author of the book Alchemical Traditions, and his new book is The Leaf of Immortality, which we'll have him on to talk about. He's an old friend of mine from back in the day, and we very much look forward to having him on here. So those are some things uh, to keep your eyes out for in the weeks that come in the world of demonosophy. And until next time, keep the dark fire burning.